Good morning, LL Nation. What's good with it? I am Sean Davis at SD2 Mics. This is the Lucky Lefty Podcast. I am solo today, but you're going to be my co-host. How about that? LL Nation going to help me co-host the show. And hopefully, Irish Breakdowns Brian Driscoll jumps in at about 9.30 this morning to have a conversation. Malik, unfortunately, pray for him. He has to deal with some things uh, on today and we'll be back tomorrow. So send your love and your thoughts out to Lucky Lefty himself. As always, we're featuring and brought to you by Anora Whiskey. Go to AnoraWhiskey.com. It's that premium American whiskey. That's right, AnoraWhiskey.com. Also would like to announce pre-sale. Pre-sale for Lucky Lefty merchandise is going to be starting January the 26th. That's right. We are in the final stages of, matter of fact, Malik and I should have the uh, fitted caps. We should be rocking them next week on the show. So we look forward to that. We thank you guys for your support. We thank you for subscribing, sharing, and liking, and letting everybody know how dope the Lucky Lefty podcast truly is. We greatly, greatly appreciate you, and we thank you so much. So once again, pre-sales for that Lucky Lefty merchandise, like the Screen Poppers t-shirt, the fitted caps, the trucker caps, all of that stuff is in the final phase. And we look forward to pre-sales getting done and being made available to you on the 26th. We're also going to be launching our website, LuckyLeftyPodcast.com. LuckyLeftyPodcast.com is going to be going live within the next two weeks as well. Basically housing merchandise and all of our shows and Malik's writings and his uh, his videos as far as looking at young players that are coming up around the nation, especially from the quarterback position. So let's rock that. Uh, so give me your comments. Today we're talking about how to build Notre Dame, right? How to build Notre Dame. And it's very important that we tap into, I want to play something that Marcus Freeman said post Fiesta Bowl at the press conference to kind of get us started. Here we go. Marcus Freeman at the Fiesta Bowl after the loss to Oklahoma State. Did a good job at, you know, getting into some 10 personnel, which they really hadn't shown much all year. And, and it was good. And, and, they made some good second half adjustments offensively and defensively um, to stop what we were doing offensively and, and to kind of exploit some things defensively. Um, so they did a good job and, and you got to give them credit where credit's due. Uh, but for me, obviously, as the leader um, of this program, it's it's again, it's a pit in your stomach, as I told the group a minute ago, that you want to bottle it up and you want to remember how this feels. And the honeymoon stage is over. Right. It, the whole. Hey, new head coach. It's a great story. No, it's about having a great product and it's about having a great team. And so we have to make sure that it's about developing this team for next year, right? This year's over. So everything we do from now moving forward is going to be development and making sure that we're prepared to have success. The two things I want to pull from that are him talking about great product, great team, great product, great team. So my question to you guys, how many college football programs do you consider to have a great product, right? Because I consider Notre Dame 
to probably be the fourth or fifth best football program in the nation right now. Four or five. It's debated. But would you say that Notre Dame has a great product? We know we're trying to become a great team, but does Notre Dame have a great product? That's what I really want to tap in today or tap into today. Can you have a great product without necessarily having a great team? And in building, how is Notre Dame going to build a team to be able to defeat the likes of Georgia and Alabama to get a win in an NY6 or to get a win in the first round semifinals of the college football playoff and eventually move on and win a national title? So when we think about this, we think about great product, great team, because the way Marcus Freeman was talking, it seemed like in the process, the great product comes first and then the great team comes next. I want to go to something else Kirby Smart said. I wasn't able to pull the video, but Kirby Smart in his press conference talked about having better teams or more talented teams at Georgia, but those teams were not as special as this team that was able to overcome Alabama, finally. And I think about what he's saying. It's like, you can have talented teams, but it really takes a special group. And I think Malik mentioned it yesterday, like that LSU group with Joe Burrow was a special group. You had that special group, and immediately with the same coach, minus a couple of assistant coaches, similar talent couldn't win more than eight games the next year. So how important was Joe Burrow to making that thing special? Like, is it the quarterback that makes it special? Was it a special quality that Stetson Bennett had that Jake Fromm didn't have, right? Like Jake Fromm, literally, if he could have made a couple of plays in the fourth quarter, then Georgia wins the national championship in 2019. And you can look at it that way. So. It's a lot of different ways you can look at this, or I'm sorry, that was 2017, I believe. It's a lot of different ways you can look at this. You can break it down. But how do we build Notre Dame up? So let's get to your comments. I want to see what you guys have to say. Does product come before a great team? I got Gavin Wright. Appreciate you. How about Victor Fangio and Brian Flores at least getting a look for D.C.? Um, Brian Flores is actually interviewing for the Bears job. That was announced on yesterday. Uh, Demetrius Rex, start with your first comment. It all starts with the quarterback position. Buckner undoubtedly has the highest ceiling of a quarterback in Notre Dame since Jacobic. If properly developed and if ND lands Dante, We'll be set there for a while. And a matter of fact, I'm glad you mentioned that Dante Moore at the uh, National Combine did talk about trying to get to a decision, shortening his list. He's starting to feel the pressure to make a decision. And he's looking forward to his visits in the spring and going into the summer and making a decision shortly after that. So I think Dante knows what he wants to do. I think his eyes are definitely on the situation at Michigan and Jim Harbaugh, I think his eyes are definitely on Notre Dame, the conversations that he has had with Marcus Freeman. And 
probably a couple other schools in the South. But for my money, I think Dante's going to stay in the Midwest. So it probably comes down to Ohio State, Michigan, Notre Dame, and maybe a sleeper, a sleeper team maybe on the East Coast. I don't see him going out West or I don't see him going down South, in my honest opinion. Uh, continuation of that also if the rest of the staff can recruit a Notre Dame level then everything will sort itself out around the quarterback and on the defensive side of the ball um, 23 class seems to have it uh, locked up I'm actually working on a story right now for Irish Breakdown uh, and talking about the special camaraderie that exists in that 23 class and I'll be releasing that probably next week uh, sitting down talking to Drake Bowen, who's preparing for baseball season, and talking about he's pretty much the leader of that 23 pack. And what their bond, the bond that it's solidifying right now during recruiting, ultimately can become a special team two or three years down the road. So we're going to talk about that. And, you know, once I get it published, we'll come back and talk about it in depth more on the podcast with Malik. Appreciate you, Demetrius Rex. Once again, Malik was out today. He's not going to be able to make it. Still want to come and give you guys some great content today. And hopefully Brian Driscoll, if he has time, he's going to be joining us a little bit later in the show. Josh, appreciate you. I see you with the Houston Texans logo right there. You want Doug Belt for D.C.? What he did there at Houston was amazing. Um, honestly, Doug Belt would probably be third or fourth on my list. And this is just based upon what has been said by Marcus Freeman as far as what he's looking for. When I look at what Doug Belt did in Houston, I don't know if the system he ran is exactly. And I think we talked about this yesterday. Someone asked the question, could Marcus actually be the head coach in the D.C.? And I spoke about how I prefer him not to do that. And matter of fact, give that energy over to recruiting because that's where it's needed right now with him being the main recruiter. And honestly, Doug Belt does a great job. He fits the recruiting mold. I just don't know if his system is exactly what Marcus Freeman wants to see on the field. And that would be the interesting thing. The seamless transition system-wise would be Mason, would definitely be Heacock. Those would be the top two, just based upon system, just based upon system. I think everybody that is on the list are great coaches, great candidates, but just seamless transition because of the systems they run, Mason and Heacock go to the top of the list. And then after that, it's all about really who interviews well. You know, just because you don't particularly run that system at the school you're at doesn't mean you don't know how to do it. And that's where the interview comes on, uh, comes into play when Marcus Freeman sits across from you and says, yo, how do you view our defense? Or how do you view using the uh, players that we have? How do you view using Isaiah Foskey? How do you view using uh, Jalen Sneed when he comes in? How do you view developing and using our young safeties on the back end. How do you view having a lockdown corner, number one corner like Cam Hart? How do you play off of that? Those are the type of questions that I'm sure will come up in the interview. And 
because of a system. Now, Doug Belt could answer that Cam Hart question because he had really good defensive backs and played a lot of man-to-man. Not as much as Cincinnati, but he played a lot of man-to-man with those defensive backs. So it will be very interesting. It's all about the interview. It really is. It's really going to be all about the interviews and Marcus Freeman feeling comfortable with whomever's coming in, being able to take his system and then add their own their little tricks to it and make it better. You guys are ready for the petty train already <laughs> Absolutely. Don't forget, share, subscribe, subscribe, share, and most importantly, hit that like button. Hit that like button. Jason Buckhart says, can't wait to see the trucker cap. Man, um, we're going to actually have two designs. We're going to drop one at the end of the month, and then we're going to also drop one around the Super Bowl. That's a little spin, a different spin on the original design. That's going to be our Super Bowl edition. Matt, 2000. yes, Malik had to take care of something uh, today that was very important. And we want to make sure he's healthy. And that's why he stepped away. So he's. I just told him, don't worry about trying to rush back. Just take care of your business and we'll get you tomorrow. Hopefully, Brian Driscoll will be joining us in the next 15 to 20 minutes. If not, we're going to rock out with you, man. I'm going to give you as much content as I can and answer your questions. Michael Johnson, Indy has a great product. Yes. Are we a great team? Not yet. Texas is a great product. But the team is not just my opinion. All right, Mike. Okay. Brendan Stannard, thank you, man, for tapping in as always. Sean, I would say ND has a good product right now. Great teams are remembered for winning championships. We need to break down the barrier before we're in the combo of being great. And really, that's why I played what Marcus Freeman said. And then brought up what Kirby Smart said, because like I said yesterday, I felt uncomfortable even talking in the comments after the show and people that were watching the show later in the day and, and leaving their comments. I felt like watching Stetson Bennett win a championship, people started to feel like, yo, okay, we can do this. And Tyler Buckner has to find his own way. Just like Stetson Bennett had to find his own way. Tyler Buckner has to find his own way. We have to give him an opportunity as a first-time starter to develop. The great thing about Tyler Buckner is being at Notre Dame, you can develop and win games at the same time. Like, that's that's the cool thing. So even if it's not this year and next year, so the 2023 team is really the team that has that special vibe, then that's fine, you know? Notre Dame's going to have good teams moving forward. Or like Michael just said, a good product. But when will that special team show up on the Notre Dame campus? Because those are the special teams, like you just said, Brandon, the teams that win championships, they're special. They're special. Lou Holtz had a lot of great teams, a lot of great talent. But there was something special about that 1988 team. It really was. The 1989 team probably was more talented. And don't forget, they went to Miami, tied 10-10 at half, and just came out flat in the second half, and Miami went on to win and win the national championship. So the 89 team was probably more talented. But that 88 team, it was just a special vibe. 
and a special year uh, that they had. Josh Miller, thank you so much for tapping in. Notre Dame is like Princeton basketball. We need a team to win where other schools can win with one or two special talents. Um, I, I think I get the gist, the gist of what you're trying to say. I wouldn't go as far as Princeton basketball because there's such a disparity in talent. I would say Notre Dame is maybe like Notre Dame would be a seventh seed from a big conference in the NCAA tournament. And we've seen plenty of seven, eight seeds that have a special group of juniors and seniors that have developed together, played together, and all of a sudden they're making this run. Let's say like Connecticut when they beat uh, Michigan with uh, Kimball Walker in that crew and to beat. That crew was special. They weren't overly talented. They had some, good, some really good guards, and they were able to make a couple of plays. They were tough. They rebounded. They beat a couple of good teams, cleared the way to the Final Four. And once you get to the Final Four, all bets are off, and they were able to win two tough games and bring the championship home. So I would really kind of liken more than Princeton, I would liken Notre Dame to a big conference team that just doesn't get the same players like a Duke and a Kentucky. But they're still a big conference team, still a good program, and if you allow them – to keep guys together, they can shock and surprise a lot of teams in the tournament. So at this point, I would agree with you that Notre Dame from a team standpoint is like right there. It's going to take a lot. But I do believe what the upgrade in recruiting that we should see from Marcus Freeman. And we saw it immediately when he came in as a defensive coordinator. We saw the defensive recruiting change overnight, like immediately. The players he went after, the players he offered, and once he offered those players, yo, they were in. Whatever he was selling, they believed it. And it's going on to the 2023 class, which could carry that special trait. You see it even in the recruiting, how together they are, how they go out and they constantly talk about think big. And they're talking about think big, come to Notre Dame, think big. And they're conveying that. And you see other recruits buying into it with the eyeballs and with the retweets. Saw somebody in the chat talking about Christian Gray, defensive back out of St. Louis, possibly, you know, committing in the next week or so. It's been a possibility. I mean, that's been the buzz around Christian Gray, I would say, for like the last month that he's going to commit. And he wants to be a part of the Adon Schuler and the Peyton Bowen class to kind of reestablish and maybe bring the DBU moniker to Notre Dame in the future. That would be great. So, yeah, that's one thing to look forward to. <coughs> you guys, excuse me. Gavin Wright, honestly, product and team should have some yin and yang. They need to complement themselves. You can totally have an off-weight situation, and usually one hand washes the other. Absolutely. I can rock with that. Um Tom Belort, thank you so much for tagging in. A special team is talented, doesn't take shortcuts, and is willing to press persevere when things go against them. Yeah, I, you know what, Tom? 
I tend to agree with that, right? Because you can have all the talent in the world, but if you're not mentally tough and if you can't react to other good teams, in basketball, they call, in the NBA, they say everybody makes a run, right? All teams make a run. Even bad teams make a run during the game. And it's the ability of the great teams or the special teams to absorb that run and then come back and counter immediately. Matter of fact, last night I, I spent about an hour watching uh, Golden State go up against Memphis last night. Memphis is a young team, uh, third best record in the Western Conference. They're challenging all the top teams. Young and Golden State came out in the third quarter and hit them with a nice run, went up double digits. And you can see the development of this young Grizzlies team because they took it, they came right back, and then they won the fourth quarter and won the game. So it's that type of resiliency that a special team has to have, especially in college football. And I think you saw that on Monday night with the Georgia team, right? Because everything, even with the injuries, it looked like everything was starting to trend. We've seen this before. Like the Stetson Bennett fumble in the fourth quarter, and you start to say, here we go again. Georgia's doing the Kirby Smart thing. They're about to give this thing to Alabama. Once again, we've seen this play, we've seen this play out before. And the next thing you know, Yo, Stetson Bennett and the offensive line, they step up. They start to run the ball. They get a couple of big plays. Defense gets a stop. Ball game. And that's what a special team does. They respond. Uh, John Clement, these more or bust comments are comical. Bennett was a walk-on stopping. Um, well, John, I think people are saying – I think Notre Dame fans are fed up with the Stetson Bennett's of the world when it comes to Notre Dame in the quarterback room. And honestly, I think the Notre Dame fan base is tired of the Ian Books. I think they're tired of the Drew Pines. Not saying that they're bad quarterbacks, but Notre Dame wants a stud quarterback. They want a Bryce Young. They want a Trevor Lawrence. And there's nothing wrong with that. So for them in the 2023 class, it's good to have these great defensive recruits. But, man, nothing will top it off more than having a guy like that at quarterback join the class. And if he joins the class, then a guy like Cardinal Tate comes. Then the other top, Malik Elsey comes. And then the other top wide receivers and tight ends want to come. And so that's what Notre Dame fans are just craving for. That's it. Um, can Notre Dame win? My honest opinion. Can Notre Dame win a national championship with a Stetson Bennett? Stetson Bennett's not winning at Notre Dame, not with the way the roster is currently. And can Notre Dame get to the point where they have 25 stars and that much elite talent and that much elite depth on a football team in today's climate? That's going to be very difficult. That's just flat out going to be very difficult for Notre Dame to get to that point and to have that much stock, stockpile talent on a roster. So, man. So Brian Driscoll is going to join us in a quick second, and we're going to talk about this more. But, man, I'm here to tell you, Notre Dame has a challenge in front of us, and this is why we're talking about how to build this team. I can't wait for Brian to jump on because we, me and Brian probably are going to differ a lot on this topic because he sees the, the roster having more talent than I do per se. 
And yeah, he sees the roster having more talent currently. I think the first thing that jumped out to me, if we could talk about it, just use Georgia for an example of where we need to get to. You've heard Malik and I, especially after the Fiesta Bowl loss, we talked about the one thing that jumped out. Like, yeah, you can talk about Clarence Lewis, and that's fine. Scheme was not the problem. The preparation scheme Notre Dame to be able to attack Oklahoma State once they went spread, once they went 10 personnel and tried to go tempo. And in the midst of that tempo, Notre Dame had multiple opportunities to create sacks, tackles for loss, tackles that got you off the field on third down, and then linebackers failed multiple times in the second half. And that could have been the two or three plays that led to Notre Dame ultimately holding on and getting a victory. That's the main thing that stood out to us. If you watch that game against Alabama, the tackling from the safeties and the linebackers for Georgia was phenomenal. Absolutely phenomenal. That's the one thing that stood out. Like every time you would see Bryce Young try to give himself some time and run out to the sideline. Here was Tyndall. It was Nicobe Dean coming down with speed, but coming down with control speed, being able to break down at a certain point, force Bryce Young, Bryce, Bryce Young to make a decision, and then make the tackle. And that is what we saw from Notre Dame players, or that's not what we saw from Notre Dame linebackers. They just came through uncontrolled speed, Whiff on the tackle, and the next thing you know, hey, it's a problem. So let's bring in my good friend. Um, he's doing me a huge favor this morning, Brian Driscoll from Irish Breakdown. Unfortunately, your name's not Malik Zaire. I'll take it. Under there. I'll but. take it. I'm 3-0. I'm undefeated as the starting quarterback at Notre Dame. And uh, never threw an interception at Notre Dame. Number two in interceptions? No, Malik never, never threw, threw an interception. Never threw an interception. Okay. He, okay. he reminds me of that all the time. I'll dig that. Like, okay. I never threw an interception in Notre okay. Dame. I mean, he played three games, but it's cool. I got you. <laughs> Lucky Lefty Podcast. My good friend Brian Driscoll joined us. Brian, today we're talking about coming off the championship game. We're talking about being realistic. We know the 2023 recruiting class is looking really good on the defensive mm -hmm. side of the ball. But we want to be realistic about how Notre Dame can truly or what they need, how they need to be built to take the next step, how they need to be built. Because let's be realistic. I don't see Notre Dame stockpiling talent like Alabama and Georgia and having 25 star recruits. Yeah. Like, like Clemson never did that either. Exactly. Right. right? Exactly. What Clemson was able to do was be good enough at certain spots mm -hmm. that they could have a dynamic quarterback that could take him over that, that hump. Right. And, and yeah. I think that, you know, I think number one, the biggest thing you need to do as a program is you need to build around your strengths. Yeah. And that's something we have not always seen the previous head coach do. It's something Marcus Freeman has to do. Look, everything, every time you take a job at a school, you have to figure out like, hey, look, what is what is the best aspect of our program? Yeah. If we do this thing right, what can continue to be the best aspects of our program? Right now, in some areas. You say, okay, offensive line. All right. You need to always make sure that you're recruiting that at the elite level and that you've got a great O-line coach. Okay. Uh, tight end. 
tight end for the most of Brian Kelly's tenure has been a focal point of the offense. But then we saw that stretch from like, what was it, like 14 to 16 where the tight end became kind of an afterthought. That can never happen. And then you've got to say, okay, keep building around, you know, linebacker should always be a strength for Notre Dame. I mean, no one else has had three Butkus Award winners in the last decade, right? Yeah. I mean, there's no excuse not to have, you know, really strong linebacker play. And we've seen Notre Dame be up and down with that. You know, right. you've got a, a Manti Teo and Jalen Smith, but then their, their sidekicks weren't up to par, you know, because not because you can't recruit to Notre Dame, but because mistakes that were made by the staff. Because John Tenuta looked at Luke Keekley and looked at Dan Fox in the 09 class and said, we'll take Dan, Dan Fox. Fox. And that's no knock on Dan Fox. He was a nice player at Notre Dame, right? He started on a team that went 12-1 and one and played for a championship. But he's not Luke Keekley, no. right? And you've got to stop making those kind of mistakes. And then you've got to say, okay, what are the areas that we struggle to recruit elite players at a high level? Okay, secondary. Um, defensive line, we get really good ones, but can we get great ones? Okay, yeah. we can't. We don't get a lot of great ones. That means we need to have a lot of good ones. Okay, check. I think they've accomplished that, right? And then you look at offense and say, okay, running back, we're just not going to get a lot of five-star running backs. Okay, that's fine. We can get really good wide receivers, though. Notre Dame has always gotten good receivers. So you've got to make sure that you've got the people in place to land that. And at the end of the day, it's Notre Dame has got to do a better job of developing quarterbacks. Yeah. Because that is a position that that elite players will come to if you build it right. You know, that's the position where it's like, you know, to to steal a phrase, Sean, from a, a great movie that I know you and I both both are aware of. But if you build it, they you will come. come. Right. I mean, if, if you build the right situation, the right operation, you'll get that quarterback. And then when you get him, you know, <coughs> Jovic, <coughs> Buckner, <coughs> excuse me, you know, we're still covering back from that little head cold I had. You got to then develop those guys. Yeah. And that's the big key. And so the thing is, I think Notre Dame can have an elite roster. That's one thing where I disagree with people on. And my evidence of that is 2015. Yeah. It's just that the margin for error when those t with Notre Dame tends to be smaller. And so you can't afford to have a Joe Schmidt at Mike linebacker. You can't afford to have your quarterback situation in 17 and 18 be what it was. Where those teams, I, I feel like Notre Dame's had three teams that could compete on the big yeah. stage. 15, 17, and 18. The problem is, is that in one of those years you had, you made a mistake as a D coordinator and strength program that was on you. Yeah. And then the other two years, your quarterback play wasn't good enough. And that ultimately is, is doomed the program. Yeah. My biggest fear looking at the comments after we did our show yesterday, just kind of looking at the comments from people that watched later in the day is I felt like there was an unfair expectation building up for Tyler Buckner based upon the fact that Stetson Bennett won a national championship. And I'm like, yo, hold on. Like, you know, we had one, I think John Klimek asked a question earlier in the show before you came on and uh, talking about Stetson Bennett and saying, yo, if we can definitely get the job done. He didn't understand why, you know, all the talk about, you know, getting these top quarterbacks in the 2023 class was a must. And I'm, I'm trying to point out, if you're going to have the roster that Georgia has, then yeah, you can you can win with Stetson Bennett. But Notre Dame is not going to be able to get to that level. Right. And you just mentioned Clemson. Clemson needed two elite quarterbacks to overcome and win the national championship. Right. 
over teams that had overall better rosters than they did. Absolutely. I mean, look, Alabama had overall, but if you go look at the NFL draft, Alabama had, but look, Notre Dame in 2015 had more players from its 2015 team that played in that game against Clemson. So not, not like your freshman that never played, but eventually became a stud. I'm talking about guys that were on that team that played on those teams. Notre Dame had more guys taken in the first three rounds of the NFL draft from that team than Clemson did. The difference was quarterback and coaching. Yeah. Right. I, I'm, I think the other thing, too, is we, we've got to, as fans, we've got to make sure we're we're very leery of using the exception to define the rule. It's kind of like, well, J uh, Trevor Lawrence did what he did as a true freshman. So if our true freshman doesn't do that, Tyler Buckner, then he's a bust. Right. Uh, which there are some people that feel that way. Well, you know, he wasn't this, he wasn't that, and they're already looking to replace him, despite the fact he had way more production as a true freshman than Bryce Young had as a true freshman or Jamarcus Winston, Jameis Winston or Michael Vig or a ton of other players that redshirted as true freshmen and never even got that opportunity. And then the other one is this Georgia team, because two things are true about this Georgia team. Number one is we told you before the year, everybody, that this was going to be a down year. There weren't going to be great teams this year. That happens every four, five, six years. You're going to get that team that's got a good enough town around but take advantage of that. 2017 and 20, 2017 was one of those years, you know, where it was a down, a bit of a down year relative to other years. There was no Clemson 2018 that year. There was no LSU 2019 or Bama 2020 that year. I mean, this Georgia team that, that won the title yesterday would have got curb stomped by last year's Alabama team. And, and they barely beat an Alabama team without Jamison Williams, without John Mechie and without Josh Job. you know, barely won that game. And, and, you know, so, yeah, Stetson Bennett made some gutsy big-time throws in that game. But he's not in position to make those throws if John, Jameson Williams doesn't get hurt. I mean, because they couldn't cover Jameson Williams. That's that's honest. That's so, the honest evaluation of how the game was going. Right, right. It's yeah. kind of like I've always said, if Colt McCoy doesn't get hurt in the 2009 title game, I, I don't Alabama think Alabama – Yeah. Right. So you you can't really prove it, but I'm just going off the way that the game was being played. And so to me, you know, I, I think that I think that you need to to not look at that, right? And, and I see a comment down there, Sean, that's a good one that says we we need to stop trying to be Bama or Georgia or Clemson and just be Notre Dame. I get, I agree with that, which is why I said at the beginning the first thing you need to do is look at what you can be elite at. Is where can you recruit at an elite level? Where mm -hmm. can you develop at an elite level? But that doesn't mean you don't take lessons from those teams. Right. And that's what I think the mistake that Brian Kelly made was he kept trying to chase those teams to be like them. He kept trying to be like 2012 Bama when 2012 Bama beat them. You know, I, I think that you you take lessons from the elite teams. You say, what are they doing that's winning? Okay, they're recruiting. They've got great quarterback play, these kind of things. Because I would argue not having a great quarterback has kept some really talented Georgia teams from not winning a title Absolutely. in the past. Absolutely. And and so I, I do believe that you need to have a – I don't think you have to have a number, a top five overall draft pick. I don't go there. I don't even think you necessarily need a first-round draft pick. I think that it's worked out that way. I think you need a dynamic player. And we've seen guys not be dynamic. I'll put it to you like this. In 2017, I've made this argument that if you have Lamar Jackson instead of Brandon Wimbush, Notre Dame wins a title. Okay, I believe that to be true. But if you just had Bryce Perkins, like a, a, a Bryce Perkins type player in 2017, yeah. if you just had John Wolford from, from Wake Forest in 2017, I think Notre Dame wins a title. 
you just needed a dynamic quarterback that can be dynamic with his arm and his legs. Brandon was dynamic with his legs, but Brandon had been ruined by that point in time as a passer. Yeah. So I I, I think you need a dynamic quarterback. It doesn't have to be a generational, uh, you know, uh, top 10 NFL pick. So yes, Dante Moore is the easiest path to get there. Right. But if you don't get Dante Moore and you end up with Jackson Arnold, that's still a really good quarterback. quarterback. And And let's be be clear. Jackson Arnold is not Stetson Bennett. No, Ian Book is physically better than Stetson. Levels above Stetson. Right. Physically, Ian Book is is a level above Stetson Bennett. Physically, where Ian Book always had the issue was here and here, and and that's where Stetson Bennett doesn't have that fear. Stetson Bennett is more like Tommy Reese was, which was, but more athletic, which was, he probably has more confidence in himself than he should, right? Based on his God given ability, but that allows him to make plays that he otherwise you know wouldn't be making, and that's why he's got a ring, and Ian Book never never got one. Yeah. And it's amazing, you know, because I see comments. Look, <laughs> people forget, like, you know, you say, well, Sesson Bennett balled out in the fourth quarter. Yeah, he was literally the reason that that game was close for the first three quarters. Like, the Georgia offense, they dared Sesson Bennett defensively to beat them. Yeah. And he couldn't get it done. Until the second half, until yeah. Until the second half, or until the fourth quarter, really. Right. That's when he made the plays, because the fumble took – Took place at what eleven thirty two left on the clock in the fourth right. quarter. Alabama takes the lead, but the response not just by Stetson Bennett, the response by the entire team mm-hmm. at that point. This goes back to I played a clip. I don't know if you remember this. Marcus Freeman at the Fiesta Bowl post game press conference said something, and he said, "You know what? The honeymoon is over, and now it's about putting a better product on the field." Mm-hmm. And then becoming a great team. And I thought that was very important because he talked about improving the product and then the great team coming after that. You and mean he didn't blame like his receivers <laughs> and, you know, uh, his players for not being good enough? He didn't no. do that? After, no. I, don't know. I thought no. that was standard operating procedure was to blame the players name, after a game. No, nah, oh. it was a different voice. Huh. Totally different voice. And he basically – he put it on himself to say it's time for us to develop hmm. a better product hmm. and a great team. The highest paid guy in the football operation taking responsibility for the team's performance. Wow, that's a yeah. really strange new yeah. concept I haven't seen in a while. Yeah. Hmm. I kind of like that. I yeah. I kind of like that. It sounds like the same thing you would hear from a Nick Saban. Yeah. A, a, a great coach who great understands coach. about accountability. Yeah, I get that. That's really – I like that. It's interesting. So, my question that I – Am I being petty enough for you today, Sean? Am, no, am no, I, no. You okay. haven't gotten am there I, yet. You am I, I'm, not, I'm not bringing it – okay, okay. No, you can be okay. even more petty. It's still early for me. You know what I mean? Like, it's – you know, it's – it's. I'm, I'm, I'm warming up. I'm warming up. If there is any show where we embrace the petty, it is the Lucky <laughs> Left Podcast. Be as petty as you want to be. So, my question to LL Nation, and I, I pose it to you, does the product come before the great team in a football program? Explain explain so explain that out for me a little bit. You you become a great product. Can you become a great product before you have a great team? I think George has been a great product for years. Mm-hmm. Like Kirby Smart came in and totally changed the product from what it was under Mark Rick. Right. It became a great product. It takes a great team to win a championship. Like, 
1988 was a great team, mm -hmm. special team. Lou Holtz had more talented teams than mm -hmm. a 1988 team. 88-93 are not in the top two of most the, talented teams. The 89 team was... Yeah. 89 team was more talented than the 88 team. And, Absolutely. Lou, and, and the 92 team was more talented than the 93, the 93. team. Absolutely. Right. So you, it's, it's a difference between just having a great product, but in the midst of having a great product, because Nick Saban has a great product every year, mm -hmm. but there are only going to be certain teams in the midst of that product that are able to get it done. And those are great teams. Why they're remembered as great teams? Because they won the championship. Mm -hmm. And some people like that are closer to the program might go back and say, you know what? Yeah, that team might have gotten far farther, but really, this team was a better team. Mm -hmm. If you just look at the talent and what they should have done. Right. And we can look at Notre Dame, the teams and the defenses under BVG. And from a talent standpoint, they should have performed better defensively. They had the talent to do it, but sure. – the scheme they ran and the plays that were called put them in bad positions not to use that talent to the best of their ability. So that's just the question we're looking at today. Like Notre Dame, the next steps, developing and building a national championship team at Notre Dame. Let me give you an example. And I I, I jokingly said this the other day, but I was really serious because Malik, he just died laughing. I said, you want to know the next step for Notre Dame for me? I'm not even looking at Alabama. We know that that's the top program, and that's who you have to beat more than likely to win a championship. I'm not looking at them. I just want a MAC team to come into Notre Dame and be blown out by the second quarter. Can, can I get that? Right. I want a MAC team coming into right. Notre Dame Stadium and just being blown out in the first half. Right. Can I get well, yeah, because the, and the only one that we kind of saw them do that with was the Brian Van Gorder-led team, Bowling Green in 2019. Right. And even then, it was kind of like, eh. You know, yeah, so you know, that's the type of improvement in the product that I want to see initially before we even start talking about. I, I would argue we've kind of seen steps toward. I mean, look, let's be honest. Brian Kelly in Notre Dame didn't lose to a ranked, an unranked team at, 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 since like, what was it? Like, oh, 2016, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. So we've at least seen them seen them take that step where they're not losing to those teams anymore. There's no more Tulsa losses. That, and right. you know, and Nick Saban had to go through that too. I mean, let's not forget two was it three years before he won a national championship, or two years before they lost to Louisiana Monroe at home. Yeah, that first year, first two years were tough. Yeah, and yeah, you know, I think it's a little bit of a combination of both, Sean, because I think that like when you look at Alabama's first title team in '09. That their 2008 2009 recruiting classes were really good, like mm -hmm. really good, but they weren't like like what they became. Right. And if you go look at that starting lineup, you know they had guys like Eric Anders, uh, you know Javier Arenas, Cream Jackson. Those were low ranked guys. Those were, right. I mean, if I remember correctly, I think Arenas is num next option besides Bama because they got on him late. You know, just because they were trying to bring in guys was like Florida International and. That Cream Jackson was was recruited by like Bowling Green and and UConn and teams like that before Alabama came in. Uh, Eric Anders was like a two star outside linebacker. I mean they they had some elite players because Bama always has that. They had that when they were losing under Mike Shula and Mike the Board. And you know their quarterback was Greg McElroy and you know Mark Ingram was a became a great college player, but he was I mean he was a good player coming out of high school, but he wasn't he wasn't Trent Richardson and guys like that. 
but they they became a great team because they were coached so incredibly well. That's the one thing I don't think Bam has ever gotten enough credit for is is very good coaching and that's what hurt them on on Monday night. They got out coached. I've never seen a Bama team uh get out coached by like that against an SEC opponent. I just haven't seen it. You know, we've seen them get out coached. I thought Clemson out coached them in 18. Yeah. I thought Ohio State out coached them in 14. Not just outplayed them but also out coached them. Uh that was to me the the thing that that you know, and I'm not surprised because Bill O'Brien. You know, I'm not a Bill O'Brien fan by any stretch of imagination. Yo, neither am I. I was shocked that Nick went that route. Yeah. Once Sarkeesian left. Yeah. Look, every coach makes mistakes. I mean, er, er, the different. And this is the thing I would always say is like, look, saying that Brian Kelly made a mistake to hire Brian Van Gorder isn't a criticism of Brian Kelly because Urban Myers made mistakes. Nick Saban's made mistakes. The difference yeah. is, is they learn from their mistakes like almost immediately mm-hmm. and made, like when he made Tosh as D coordinator. I mean, that was sort of like a year and he was like, eh, this is stupid, you know, uh, and he, and he moved on from them. And that's what, that's what good coaches do. It's like when, you know, when, when Urban Meyer thought it'd be a good idea to turn his over his offense over to Tim Beck and Ed Warner, like he did that for a year and they lost in the playoff 31, nothing. And he was like, eh, I'm not doing that again. And he went right. out and got Ryan day, right. you know? So, uh, and Kevin Wilson. So I, you know, I, I think that, that you've got to be willing to make the, you know, learn from your mistakes. But when you look at that Bama team in 09, they were a really well-coached team that had enough star power to win. And I think that's the thing for me with Notre Dame is that the, the, they don't need the number one, number two classes. Do you know how many number one classes Clemson has signed in the last 10 years? Did they ever do it once? Yeah, Not once. Their highest ranked class was third. And here's the thing. That number three ranked class is on the current team that just had their worst season in 10 years. Yeah. You know, uh, I, I I think that 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 what he did a great job of was finding the elite players at the difference maker positions. Notre Dame is, has, has, to me, I think has those guys. I'm sorry. Like, I watched that championship game on Saturday night, and everybody's focusing on Stetson Bennett, and I'm thinking those receivers aren't better than Notre Dame's receivers. Those guys on Georgia's team aren't better than Notre Dame's receivers. They don't have more speed on offense than Notre Dame has, in my opinion. It's They have a bet, they have a system that, 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 number one, they play physical football, and they can win in the trenches. And th- they they weren't hugely successful running a ball, but they they kept at it. And then came out in the third quarter and didn't abandon the run. They went back at it, and then they started to wear Bama down in the second half and right. you know, hit off a couple, you know, tens and fifteens. And then all of a sudden, that opens up the big one. Play action, yeah, right. And so, to me, the fact that you look at the you look at the Fiesta Bowl, for example, the fact that Notre Dame gave up on the run, and and I don't fault Tommy Reese for that because it wasn't happening. It just wasn't going to happen. Yeah. And you know, that, that, that should never be a, a problem in Notre Dame. Cause you know, somebody asked me this the other day, somebody on our, on our board said this, Sean, what if Brian Kelly would have woken up last year and hired Harry, he and a great receivers coach beforehand. And I said, well, if you assume, also assume that Brian Kelly learns how to get a team ready for a big game, uh, why can't no, why couldn't have this Notre Dame team have competed on that stage? I mean, you're telling me a Kevin Austin and Lorenzo Styles and Braden Lindsay and Chris Tyree and Kyron Williams because remember Kyron Williams and Kyle Hamilton would have played if, if they, they were, in the were in the playoff. Yeah, you're telling me those kind of guys aren't dynamic enough to, you know, to go out and and be successful against a team like Georgia. I, I believe they can. You well, know? they've already shown that they can compete with Georgia. Right, and I would argue they in 2017 lost to a Georgia team that was better than the one that we saw win the championship. From a talent, absolutely. Yeah. 
Absolutely. Yeah. That was a team that eventually lost in overtime to Alabama on a Devontae Smith, you know, to a touchdown on like second and 22. <laughs> After right. they had, it looked like they were about to win and they give up that big play. And it's amazing you talk about that. And that's the point you just made, that 2017 team, the talent. Mm-hmm. That, that, they, that might have been the best game ever in the college football playoff, the semifinal they played against Oklahoma. Oh, man, because I thought yeah. Oklahoma was the best team that year. Yeah, that was a fantastic yeah. football game. If Oklahoma would have beat Georgia, they'd have smoked Alabama in the championship game, in my opinion. I believe their, their offense. Oh, God, yeah. There was nothing. I, don't, I think you're right because I don't think Bama would have been able to do anything. Mm-mm. Alabama would have kept them in the 30s yeah. like they did the next year, but that Bama offense wasn't scoring on Oklahoma like that. Yeah, you're right. But the talent they had at running back, the offensive line they had, the tight ends they had, the wide receivers they had, they were stacked. But that just goes to how important it is to win the trenches, right? Let's talk about that because we, we talked offline last night about how I don't the how violent how fast how hard both of those teams played on Monday night mm-hmm. and how we were just like totally impressed that two teams that had just played in the SEC championship literally could take it up another notch and I had a, a, a compadre that was actually there to cover the game. And he texted me later on that night and was like, if you could have felt the electricity on the field Mm -hmm. right before kickoff, he was like, I've never been a part of anything like that. And so I'm just amazed that athletes can will themselves to get to that point, to give that much – Brian, I'm telling you. But I don't think they are willing themselves to it by them individually, Sean. I I think that's part of the preparation process. You're talking about process process and culture now, right? Right, right. They didn't didn't do that in spite of Nick Saban and Kirby Smart trying to Mm. tamp that down. That's part of the building up to a game. And that's that's been the knock that, you know, one of the many knocks we've had on Brian Kelly over the years is stop trying to take the emotion out of fans. Yeah. You know, yes. and, you know, or I mean, out of, not out of, stop trying to take the emotion out of the game, out of your players. You know, Brian Kelly worked so hard to have this business-like approach that he forgot that to play this game at an elite level, to play, you talk about the physicality, to play, to 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 run basically and almost like run up, I mean, people thought I'd run through a wall for that guy. I mean, that's literally what football base, I mean, not literally. That's essentially what football is, right? I mean, yeah. you're trying to run into a grown man that's, you know, been doing what he what these guys do, and it's not a whole lot different than running into a wall with pads on. And, you know, you know, yeah. You know, you know someone, and it, this goes back to the quarterback discussion we had maybe five minutes ago. Malik always tells me, like, yo, he was like, Ev was cold. If you talk to Malik, he'll tell you, he's like, man, Everett was cold. Mm-hmm. Like, we thought Everett was going to be that dude. And then all of a sudden, you know, he just kind of tapered off. And it was like, no one really knew, like, man, 
what was happening. And so that seems to be the trend in the former, right? You get these quarterbacks, they come in, you see them, they have a glimpse, promise, and you're like, oh, man, this could be the guy. This could finally right. be the guy. And then it, it tapers off. What about culture impacts a young quarterback the most when you're trying to develop him and turn him into not necessarily an elite top five NFL draft pick, but just developing a really good college football quarterback? I think consistency of message. And look, I think Everett, Everett was not developed properly. He had, what, three or four different quarterback coaches during yeah. his tenure. Everett also brought some of that on himself, you know, by getting suspended and then having to be away from the team for a year, spending right. a year with with George Whitfield, which, again, I was not a big fan of. But I think the combination of Everett's own decision-making and the fact that Brian Kelly has a very unstable environment for quarterbacks, number one, constant turnover at the quarterback coaching position, I mean, you look at Everett, for example, he had Matt LaFleur, he had Chuck Martin, you know, I mean, it was like, then there was Brian Kelly trying to be involved in that process. And, yeah. you know, you just got all these guys in, in his head, you know, and, 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 and I've always felt you want as few people as possible. And this is where I kind of disagree with Malik's take on, you need a quarterback's coach. You know, my, my counter to that is, well, Every all six Alabama national title teams, their offensive coordinator was also their quarterbacks coach. And then Monday night for Georgia, Todd Munkin, the offensive coordinator, is also their quarterbacks coach. Yeah. I want as few voices in the head of a quarterback as possible. The NFL does that because they can have bigger staffs and it's a different situation. This isn't the NFL. To me, it's about creating a, a, a consistency of approach uh, creating a, a limiting the number of voices. Cause I mean, Malik's talked about this, you know, you come mm -hmm. off the field and you got Kelly telling you one thing, you got the quarterback coach telling you another thing. You got the offensive coordinator telling you another thing. And then you're wondering why Ev looks like, uh, I don't know what to do here. Cause he's yeah. had three different people tell him three different things on what he should do. Right. And, and, and I also don't think Everett had a lot of great mental toughness. You know, and and he which is because why he allowed I think the combination of that, the chaoticness of the coaching situation in Notre Dame combined yeah. with Ev not being a super mentally tough guy, which is crazy because he was a physically tough kid. Like yeah. physically, he was really tough, even though he was slender in stature. Right. He was. But yeah. you, you look at he just never responded to adversity super well after 2012. You know, you look at and then the Arizona State game was kind of that was the that was the end of it, you yeah. know, and, and you know, but I still wonder if if there was a more calm situation, you know, I mean, I, 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 we just don't, that's the thing is we don't know, Sean. I mean, we haven't like this. Somebody somebody called me a homer in there, which is a really silly. That's funny. Like I'm a homer, right? Like as hard as I've been on Brian, what, what some of you don't understand, I'm looking at you real sports talk with Alex yeah. is what we're saying is what Notre Dame should have done. So when you come back with what they've done, what do you think I've been criticizing Brian Kelly for all these years? Yeah. So, yeah. so you can't say, well, you know, if, if it's either a Brian Kelly didn't do what he needed to do, and this is why the results were what they were, or Brian Kelly did everything they could do. And Notre Dame's just not good enough.
Right. Well, that's more of a homer take than mine because you're the one justifying and excusing those things as if somehow they're not good enough. What we're talking about is what Notre Dame should have done. If you look at the talent level, Notre Dame should be able to compete with those teams. We never said they would. We said they should have if what was the whole caveat of the entire conversation. It was if Kelly would have done A, B, C, and D. You know what I mean? So, I mean, that's the whole, that's the frustrating thing. It's like people say, well, you know, Notre Dame can't do that because look what happens in every big game. Before Clemson won a title, there was a, I mean, what was, what did Clemsoning mean? Yeah. It was a, it was a disparaging comment would make for finding ways to lose big games. Yeah. Right. Uh, Including giving up 70 points in an orange bowl, like five years before they won a national title. Right. Because, but what happened? Did Clemson just wake up one day and everything was different? No, they made changes. They fired co- coordinators. They 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 went out and changed how they recruited. And it started before Deshaun. That's the thing that people got to remember. Clemson started to turn things around with Taj Boyd at quarterback. Right. It's when they beat LSU in 2012. It's when in they beat. Bowl game. Yeah. Right. And then they, then they followed up a year later and beat uh, beat Ohio State. That finally gave them the confidence where in 2014, you started to see glimpses of it. And you say, look, they got a freshman quarterback. Deshaun got hurt that year. Remember, they lost a couple games and Deshaun got hurt in 2014. Then he comes back. party was that year at Florida State. Yeah. Well, they barely lost that game. Right. And Florida State had dominated Clemson Mm -hmm. in previous seasons. Yeah. And 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 then you you know and then the other thing too, Sean, that, that happened that year is that was the first time they had beaten South Carolina in a minute, right? Because remember that was when South Carolina had Steve Spurrier. South Carolina had dominated Clemson, dominated Clemson coming into that stretch, and so then they go out there and they beat they beat um, they beat Clemson, and then they go out there and and the bowl game and smack Oklahoma. That is it, it, it's usually like that. There's some sort of event that kind of prepares you for that next moment and sometimes uh, i'm looking back clemson had lost south carolina five straight times all by double figures yeah leading into that 2014 season and it doesn't always have to be uh it doesn't always have to be a win that is that triggering event for alabama it was a loss i think they were so embarrassed by the manner in which they lost to utah that that team came in in 19 in 09 and was motivated yeah you know what I mean? And so I think there's all types of things that go into it. And I, I, I don't, if you, you, on our show, Sean, we don't say if you just get a quarterback, they're going to be fine. It, it, right. That's part of it. That's part of it. But there's a lot that goes into it. And, and Nick Saban has created a culture at Alabama and, and they call it the process. And this is why I've always been so, I've made this comment that on the face of it sounds absurd, but you have to understand what it means. Brian Kelly's problem at the end of the day was he was too results oriented. And obviously you have to win, right? And that matters, but he would look at wins that were done in a way where if you play that way against a team that's good, you lose. Right. And he would look at that as a success because he was just so results oriented and he wouldn't, it's like in 2015, he couldn't see the things that were there that, that I saw that you saw that other people saw that led to 2016 because he just looked at 10-3 with three close losses or two close losses to really good teams. Correct. Right. 
was so results oriented that he, he he didn't understand that we're not where we need to be. Nick Saban doesn't look at the result. He looks at the process, how they played to get to that result and focuses on that. And that's why you've seen Nick Saban after 20 point wins sometimes look, you'd think he'd t- his team just lost by 20. And it's usually when they lose and is when he's most defend- defensive of his team. But when they win, he's real hard on them, you know, because it's like he knows we play like this against Clemson or Ohio State or team like that is, you know, we're going to lose that game. And so I think that's something that that I hope that Marcus Freeman understands. And I think I'm 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 optimistic that he will because of who he played for. Because I think Jim Trestle was a process driven guy. Very much so. That's the only way you beat one of the greatest teams in the college football history. Yes. With and thoroughly team. outplayed them for With the quarterback years. he had. Right. Right. So the t- the the 2002 version of of Stetson Bennett. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Lucky Lefty podcast. I want to ask you about this and I know look, I need LL Nation, uh, Notre Dame fans, I need you all to relax. As a method to my madness. I know the name is going to incite responses immediately but i just think what is being said here you know we have to talk about it because it goes with you know what needs to be eliminated from a perception standpoint at notre dame or whether or not this is just an overreaction by one particular individual so we have to give credit to uh um next year it won't be so because the tag team duo will probably be down at the Alamo Dome putting in work and killing everybody on the Notre Dame beat. We already know that's going to be the case. But since we weren't there, we allowed everybody else to have the, the head start to this year. We just kind of said, Let them have ahead. their last year in the summer. Yeah, this is your last year. And uh, talk about me and my guy Ryan. We're going to be killing him for Irish breakdown. But Tom Lloyd had a discussion with Devin Moore and C.J. Williams. Mm-hmm. about their last-minute flips. And, and I just want to point out something that C.J. Williams said, and I'll paraphrase it instead of reading it. Basically, he said that, um, number one, Marcus Freeman's in-house visit made it more difficult for him mm-hmm. to decommit, and he took more time to really think about it because he was going to do it, I think, two days after the visit initially. Then he talked about if – I were a running back, regardless of Brian Kelly leaving, if I was a running back, I probably would have still committed to Notre Dame. And he said, as time went on after my commitment, I really worried about my development and my fit in the offense that Notre Dame ran. And then he went on to say, I'm not a 4-2 guy like Will Fuller, which lets you know he's very aware of the his predecessors at the position. I'm not a 4-2 guy like Will Fuller, and I'm not 6'5", like Chase Claypool. So I was just worried about how I would use and how my skill set would be used in that offense. Now, everybody doesn't you know. C.J. Williams, they feel like he didn't want to be here. Good riddance to him. I pulled from that perception at a position that Notre Dame really needs to hit hard in the 2023 class, which is wide receiver. And the connection, of course, the rumors out there as well, you know, I'm not worried about that, whether or not he didn't like Steve Angeli as a quarterback recruit and all of that. Like, push that to the side. I'm more concerned about a wide receiver in high school 
watching the offense that's being put before him on TV and deciding whether or not he fits in said offense because I think that's something that could be transferable. And I think that's something for us to watch is how Tommy Reese really puts his fingerprints on this offense moving forward. I think that's something we need to watch, especially going into this season and walking into the horseshoe with Tyler Buck. You did it on the lucky lefty. I think I think part of that, because I'm still got some sniffles. So, you know, I I I think part of that is I think he just wanted to stay closer to home and CJ's a smart kid. Yeah. And he he's kind of looking for reasons to stay closer to home. I think the other part of it is I think valid criticisms. But here's here, I guess here's why I don't completely buy it because the pass game product he decommitted from was much better than the pass game product he committed to. And and so that's a good that you know what? That's a very that's a very good point. That's a very good point. At the you know, at the same time, you know, I think there's some validity to the notion of okay, well, who has had success at Notre Dame? You know, I mean, they don't win with route runners. No. CJ's a route runner. And this is the thing I've been saying, and CJ's a really good player. And it's kind of funny, you know, when he decommitted, I had a lot of people, well, he, I didn't really like him. And, and they were actually people that didn't think he was that great beforehand and doesn't get separation. And I'm like, yeah, he didn't, wasn't getting separation in the all-star game too. And he just kept, keeps making plays. Making I think, plays. I think sometimes we focus too much on like one type of player. And if a guy isn't that, then he, you yeah. know, CJ can flat out play, but CJ's a guy that has got to be about precision. It's got to be about you know, route running and, and, and scheming them up and all yeah. that kind of stuff. And, and, you know, he's like a traditional West coast offense type of receiver. And when you look at Notre Dame's success at receiver in the last decade, it's been mostly just guys that were individually superior talents. Yeah. It was miles and chase using their elite size. It was in full and Michael Floyd doing the same thing. It was, it was, Will Fuller just being faster than everyone else. You'd really have to go back to TJ Jones in 2013 to find the last time a guy wasn't an elite talent that like that didn't have some sort of elite skill set that allowed him to kind of go out and be a really productive receiver because TJ had 70 catches for 1,100 yards, but CJ was also a six-round draft pick, not a high pick like the other guys. Yeah. And I don't know if like CJ CJ TJ Jones in 2013 is going to be a great selling point to a wide receiver that was like in the third grade when that was going on, right. you know. So that's where it comes down to when when I this has been part of my frustration is fans may not be able to look at receiver play and be like you know hey here identify this this and that and that's what we that's what we're here for and and but the, this is why we've harped so much on the technique issues because when you play better teams. You can't just out talent them. Right. For all the 506 yards that Notre Dame had on 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 January 1st against Oklahoma State, when the game was on the line in the key moments in the second half, the inability to get off the press from a technical standpoint proved costly to an offense that needed to make those plays. Yeah. And so you look at a group and and if you're CJ, you're looking at the receiving core and you're thinking, I'm I'm a I'm better at getting off a jam. I'm better as a route runner than anyone that they have yeah. right now. And that's gonna make you when you're feeling when you're making that accusation, and I think that that is an ac a relatively accurate thing to say, 
Yeah. That's going to make you question your ability to be developed. And the fact is, is that there was no, there, you know, Dell Alexander was still the coach at the time. And at the time we didn't know for a, for sure if he was going to be gone or not. We were actually leaning towards, I'm not hearing anything that, uh, that makes me think he's definitely going to get fired. Right. Eventually he was, but I'm, I kind of understand where he's coming from. I still kind of call BS a little bit because you committed to a team that was four and eight and didn't have a head coach. When he didn't commit to him, that's where he was leaning. Yeah. Cause like, I was like, Oh, like the, the NBC broadcast was so bad. Oh, you know, once Lincoln Riley was – no, he was leaning towards USC before Lincoln before Riley was Lincoln hired. Riley, yeah. They didn't have a head coach at the time. You know, so, so so you know, kind of don't come at me with that because if it was really about that, you would have been looking – you may have come back to USC la- last minute, but you'd have been looking at other schools, not USC and UCLA. Yeah. I think ultimately he wanted to stay closer to home. But I think yeah. Notre Dame gave him enough ammunition to justify it. You know, I think he was looking for a reason to get out, and Notre Dame gave him a really easy one with how their receivers are coached. The other thing I wanted to touch on that I'm sure you probably have more in-depth intel on based upon being connected more to the program than I've been over the last 10 years. He also mentioned that once he committed, nobody really, really called him that much. He was like, once I committed – they stopped calling me. Yeah. They're reaching out to me. And that yeah. I've heard that before. Lots. Yeah. With commits during the previous regime. Right. And, and and he said Marcus Freeman was very upfront, knowing that that was the case in the in-home visit and telling mm-hmm. him that's not going to be the case right. with me. But once that bell is rung, you can't unring it. You can't unring it. Yeah. You can't. Yeah. It's going to impact. That's why I would say coaching hires tend to impact the next class more than the current class. Right. And that's why most guys that are rookie coaches at Notre Dame usually do well in recruiting. Right. Historically. We have a super chat from a guy, Matt, 2000 GT. Brian Kelly was so concerned about Brian Kelly's appearance, he would never let a quarterback be the face of the team with the accolades that would be on the quarterback and not on himself. Yeah. A lot easier to blame the quarterback and protect himself. Yeah. I I think that's a big reason he didn't like Phil Dracovic. Because I think the way that Phil played – there comes a degree, Sean, where you've got to just let him play. Yeah. And you've got to be okay with him running around from, you know, side to side and launching a 50-yard ball down the field. And occasionally he's going to throw one that gets picked off. I mean, yeah. you've got to, to a degree, you've got to just kind of let him be him. Well, when you when you do that, no one's sitting there saying, like, gee, what a great coach you are. It's, holy crap, look how good that quarterback is. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And I, I don't think Brian Kelly's ever – it's like, we don't we – don't, that's why we never see assistant coaches talk because Brian Kelly wants to be the face of the football team. Yep. And it's why yep. when the players do talk they're I mean, they all say the same thing over and over and over again, because they're, they're, they're instructed on how to engage with the media and that's right. fine. That's how they should do it. But you, you have to, you have to kind of sometimes say, Hey, look, it's good to have a, a, a player as the face of the program because that's attractive on the recruiting trail. Now look, I'm still the head. Nick Saban's still the head coach, but he gives the players room to develop their own personalities, right? You know, to a degree, and and, and allows them to kind of get that love and that fame and that respect as long as it's done within the framework of of what we're trying to accomplish, right? Right. And and I just Brian Kelly was never really willing to do that, 
in so many different ways. It was always about Brian Kelly. It was about Brian Kelly getting all the love, and then when things didn't go wrong, Brian Kelly projecting blame onto other people. That's what he was always about, you know, yeah. and, and that's one of the many reasons that I became a very staunch critic of his the last couple of years is just because the things keeping Notre Dame from getting to that level were self-inflicted wounds. Yeah. And it's all, well, Notre Dame can't recruit like those teams. And I'm like, we've already seen them do it. Sean, the 2015 starting lineup on offense had four first round picks, two second round picks, a third round pick, a seventh round pick. And one of the guys that didn't get drafted would have gotten drafted. I did not quit football. And that's Steve Elmer. And then your two other guys that didn't get drafted were guys that ran mid to low four fours, Chris Brown and Amir Carlisle. Yeah. Right. And, and that that's, I'm sorry, that's good enough to compete for a title. Yeah. That's more high level talent on offense than what Clemson had that year. And, and that same year, if you, if you go look at it as far as top three round draft picks, and that's the frustrating thing for me is Notre Dame has had teams that were talented enough to compete. It's that there were, there were self-inflicted wounds that kept them from getting to that level. That's my frustration. That's my concern. And I think too many have adopted this. Well, they can't do this because that's the results we've seen, but look, those were the results for Bama until Bama stopped accepting it. Those are the results for Clemson until Clemson said no Moss, right? right? Like no more of this. We're, we're changing who we are. And that was the that was also the the thing for Georgia. Kirby Smart, I mean not Kirby Smart. Mark Rick had did a really nice job at Georgia. They were yeah. consistently a really good football team for a long period of time, but they could never get over to home. Well, they there's always a reason. Well, they're not good enough here. They can't do this. They can't do that. Blah 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 blah. And then they went out and co- hired a coach who stopped using those excuses and said, "Forget that. We're going to go out and do it differently." Yeah. And now look at them. They got a title. Hey, look. Before this year, Georgia had a lot longer national title losing streak than Notre Dame did. Right. By almost a decade. Yeah. Same thing with Clemson. Yeah. Right. Same thing with Clemson. Clemson's last title was 81. Georgia's last title was 80. And they needed a generational player to win that one. To beat Notre Dame. Right. Yeah. Right. And so why not Notre Dame? There's nothing structurally about Notre Dame that makes them not compete. And that's the frustrating thing for me. Yeah, you is, can stop with the low-hanging fruit right. and admissions and right. academics. And- Charlie Weiss could recruit a top five class to a team that went three and nine. Yeah. Think about that. Notre Dame had the number two recruiting class in the country in 08. Mm-hmm. That was put together during a season. They went three and nine. And Brian Kelly, like Charlie Weiss did a great job of tearing down a lot of the excuses that were made about Notre Dame. Brian Kelly did a good job of, of savvily I'm making up a word here in a real savvy nature, savvily building them back up. So he always had those things that he could point to when he fell short. Yeah. And ultimately that's, that was, that was it. And and Marcus Freeman has to tear them back down. And to a degree he has when it, from a recruiting standpoint so far, he has. It's a unique school, a unique position to be the head coach of Notre Dame. And it takes, some thought that goes outside the box. Yeah. Like Brian Kelly looked at Nick Saban and said, I'm not willing to fight that hard. Like I know what it's going to take and I'm not willing to fight that hard. 
to get to that level mm-hmm. and win. So based upon what you're saying, let's say this is a curve of Notre Dame football in the, under the previous mm-hmm. regime. The peak was probably from 2015 to 2018. That's the peak mm-hmm. of that regime. And if Notre Dame didn't get it done, in those three to four years, we saw what happened. We started to see what happened from a recruiting standpoint after that 2018 college football playoff. And now we see the remnants. There were still enough pieces and enough impact players to win games to get to a college football player from 2020. But the depth of talent was nowhere near those two teams that right. you mentioned. And now the real opportunity to really compete has been lost. And now you see yourself in a position where Brian Kelly is saying, I don't know if I want to work hard to get it back there right? or put in the requisite work that it's going to take to get back there. So I'd much rather go to another place. And Marcus Freeman, who came in a year before that, recognized the work that wasn't being done. Mm-hmm. And because he was only responsible for the defensive side of the ball, that's what he immediately changed once he got here was putting in the work to go out and get some of the best players to come to Notre Dame that weren't even offered when right. he walked through the doors. Right. And that is what you're going to see, the changing of the culture, wanting to play with the big boys, not necessarily not trying to be the big boys and build the program the way that they built their program. Right. But build depth, get impact players at the most important positions, I think, like you said, I love Jason Adamilo. Mm-hmm. I think he's going to be a top – I'll say he'll go in the top three rounds of the NFL draft. I feel very comfortable about that. I think Isaiah Foskey probably goes in the top two rounds. I think he'll be a first-round pick next year. I'll yeah. be shocked if he's not yeah. a top 15 total right? pick next year. And I think it's going to be a great year for pass rushes because you're going to have Will Anderson coming back. You're going to have Isaiah Foskey and right. – uh, I, I mean, it's Foskey and Anderson to me are the two best pass rushers coming back next yeah. year. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think Will will be a top five pick and Isaiah will be a top 20 pick, top 15 yeah. to 20 pick. Yeah. I think. So when you look at that, um, Notre Dame really has a chance. And I've said this and I've told Notre Dame fans to be patient because I think the product is going to immediately look better yeah. next year. I really do. I think the product of mm-hmm. what you see is going to look better. It might not end up being a college football playoff berth, but you're going to see certain things from this Notre Dame team that you haven't seen mm-hmm. on the previous regime that you're going to like. Some people might right. say a nasty. <clears throat> Some people might say a swag. Some people might say taking care of teams that you need to be a, a lot earlier right. instead of dragging the game and making it a third, fourth quarter game and ultimately getting the win. There are certain things that I believe you're going to see because of the culture that's being established that's going to pay big dividends right. in the 2023 recruiting class and the 24 recruiting class. I already think the 2023 recruiting class views themselves as a special group. Like they right. already believe that they're a special group. Before right. they even entered their senior year of high school. Which was a lot like what Malik's class was like. Yeah. I mean, they felt that way too. It was Malik, yeah. it was Jalen, it was Will Fuller, it was like it was McGlinchy. I mean, they kind of came because they were put together during that title run in t- 2018, that title game run in 2018. Right. And they were a, I mean, a lot of those guys were part of that 15 team. 
that 15 team was the most swagger filled Notre Dame team that they had. You're probably right. Which is why they were able to overcome coaching and to a degree and, and still be, be good. Sean, can you do me a favor? Can you pull up the comment from Pierre? It was up a couple. He talked about Charlie and the rings. You know what time that was? Yeah, it was like, it was like just a couple It's like right up there. It was at uh 1121. Cause he, 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 we're talking about Charlie and Charlie tearing down those things. And, and yeah. Pierre, Pierre, you know, he said, look, he said, Charlie had those Super Bowl rings on his hand too when he recruited. As if, like, like to hey, me. Thank you for sending that yes. super set for Brian feeling thank better. Thank you, Matt. I'm feeling a little better. I'm still, like, clearing my throat every two seconds when I'm not talking. But, Pierre, you know, the thing for me is that's kind of the point, though. Yeah. Right? I think I think the thing about Notre Dame, and I think ultimately the thing that that, that did Brian Kelly in, because Brian Kelly, for all the criticism I've lobbied his way, this program is in such a better place now than it was when he left. Part of it is him. Part of it's Jack Swarbrick. Part of it yeah. is the really administration. Really explain that. Most people will push back on that because of the college football playoff bursts mm-hmm. and the Fiesta Bowl. What and do you mean? The perceived notion that, you know, being outcoached and all of that, like people are worried about Marcus Freeman. Talk about Notre Dame being in a better place. Because I think the health of the program is better. And this this is the th- reason I wanted to talk about Charlie is Charlie recruited to Notre Dame during a time when Notre Dame was so was like a decade at least behind every other program and every aspect of the program, yeah. facilities. The, I mean, Charlie had to fight to get early enrollees. Remember, they the first time they let him do it, they, they, they gave him like three. Like, yeah. okay, we'll give you three. And by the time he left, they can only get five. Brian Kelly had 13 last year. Mm-hmm. He's going to have just as many this year. And we got 11 this year? Right. 11? Uh, I think 12 or 13 this year. Okay. Yeah. And and the, the field was a just a travesty during Charlie's tenure. You know, I mean, the Goog was – I mean, he was the one that was did a lot for the Goog. It, but the, the point being, Charlie was still able to recruit to that. And when you look at Brian Kelly, I think Brian Kelly came in and brought stability to the program. Yeah. And even though he wasn't a dynamic guy that could win that title without changing who he was, he brought stability. He made some hires and then Jack Swarbrick made some hires because for those who may not know this situation, after the 2016 season, Brian Kelly was looking to get out. He was looking to leave. Nobody would hire him. So, Postseason, when he's looking to leave, Jack Swarbrick and one of the uh, the associate ads for football, they were the ones going out trying to hire the assistant coaches. I talked to I talked to the coaches that were part of that process. Jack Swarbrick led their push to get them to Notre Dame. I'm talking Mike Elko and Chip Long. Yeah, Matt Bayless only came to Notre Dame. Brian Kelly was set to hire a guy from USC as his new strength coach. And then Bob Diaco calls him because he had just gotten fired that January and was like, hey, I got this guy named Matt Bayless. You got to check him out. He does a great job. I mean, so Brian Kelly didn't go out and find those guys. They, somebody else went out and found those guys or called them into him. So, you know, to me, he left the program and, you know, the, the facilities are better. The, those type of things are better because of the Jack Swarbrick, Brian Kelly combination. But here's the thing about Charlie. And, and the reason Charlie was able to recruit that way is because Charlie had a dynamic personality. Now, problem is Charlie couldn't coach. Yeah, That was the problem. He couldn't build a team. That was the problem. 
the 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 thing about Notre Dame that I think ultimately is needed is they need a dynamic personality. They need a dynamic, and I don't mean dynamic personality in that someone's super outgoing. I mean, they need that person that's either got some swagger, has got that fire that's got, I mean, Lou Holtz was a dynamic personality. Right. Uh, Marcus Freeman, I believe, is a dynamic personality. Charlie was a dynamic personality. If Brian Kelly could have recruited at Notre Dame the way that Charlie recruited at Notre Dame, we would be we'd be doing some here. And when he hired coaches that were that way, they did recruit that way. Yeah. And we look at Marcus Freeman as the example. Lucky Lefty podcast. Of course, you see the original Lucky Lefty himself was unable to do the show today. He had to take care of some personal business that was very important. And I told him, just go ahead. Don't worry about rushing back. So uh, just make sure you send out your thoughts and prayers with him. And he'll be back tomorrow. We're talking about building a national championship team. And this is what I I think it was Zenith that said the product goes in before the name goes on. I think that's Zenith TVs. That was their tagline. And the product that eventually will lead to Notre Dame's being being a national championship team starts with what Brian just said. They're in a better position than they were. There's more for Marcus Freeman to work with. And what's needed to make that last push or take that next step, he embodies that. His connection to Jim Trussell and process and how Jim Trussell took a less talented team to the national championship game and beat one of the most talented teams in the history of college football. Same process that Marcus Freeman is going to use. When you talk about Marcus Freeman and being a relentless recruiter, he knows and knows the process of doing that because he was recruited at Ohio State and to Ohio State. And he talked about not understanding as a young kid, not understanding how important it was to look at Notre Dame the way he needed to look at it during his recruiting. So he gets both sides of this thing. So he's going to be one of the best recruiters, I think, as a head coach at Notre Dame since Lou Holtz. I absolutely believe that. I don't think it's going to be a one, two-year deal and then he'll taper off. I truly believe that about you look five years down the line, Notre Dame's recruiting classes are going to be at the top. It's not going to be like a freshman thing where, you know, he gets a good class in 23, good class in 24, and then all of a sudden Notre Dame tapers off. I think you're going to see Notre Dame in the top five at least for the next five years from a recruiting standpoint. So that's something to be excited about. I want to get to a couple more comments, and then you know what time it is, guys. Let's see. Uh, I want to welcome, you know, Brian, we have a, a, a great, great supporter of the show that is an Oklahoma State fan. His name is Wet Blanket. He comes into every show. And on, honestly, Wet Blanket is a good dude. He really is. Like, you know, he was trolling initially after the Fiesta Bowl. I let him have his fun. Then I kind of got him, put him on blast one show. And he kind of, you know, tapered himself down a little bit. And now he watches the show and actually gives some good comments every now and then. You know, of course, he's an OK State fan, so I let him troll. I let him have his fun. But we appreciate his subscription. We appreciate his likes. And we appreciate him showing up because he shows up every morning. He shows up every morning. So, Wet Blanket, shout out to you, man. We appreciate you. Garen Knutson. 
Absolutely what Sean said yesterday. Forgot about the goal of forget about the goal of beating Bamor, Georgia. Let's try dominating the Mac team at home for four quarters. Look, I want to start small and take one step and then the next step and then the next step. Because this giant step that everybody's trying to take after the national championship game and seeing Stetson Bennett. Oh, we, Stetson Bennett won. We got Tyler Puckner and Drew Pond. It's all good. We got everything we need. Hold on. Hold your horses. As Brian said earlier, there's some other positions that we need to make better as well to put a better team and a better product around guys like Tyler Buckner. So then Tyler Buckner can go out and do what he needs to do to make an impact on the team and on the program. So I don't want you guys being, dude, stop setting these unfair See, I'm I'm going to disagree with you on that, Sean. Look, look, this is my thing. Yeah. Stop walking into the horse you were expecting Tyler Buckner to throw for four touchdowns and 400 yards. It's like, sure. I don't but we get... should expect them to go to the horseshoe and compete. Oh, absolutely. Without question. I, I definitely don't want them. Well, first of all, if Brian Kelly, I would have expected the same thing if Brian Kelly was the head coach. Expected it. I would have expected it. It would have something they should have done, but I wouldn't have expected I would have expected them to get their butts absolutely handed to them. <laughs> Because that's who Brian Kelly is, right? Yeah. Like to me, see, I get. I'm gonna disagree with you a little bit, Sean. And I'm. It's am hard. I am I able to do that? Can I? Am, no, am, absolutely. Okay. That's what we do. But I we don't think. Do I don't time. think. See, like you and I talk a lot about our frustration with Brian Kelly and right. how he held the program back. Right. <clears throat> we, we either gotta. We either gotta believe that, and 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 like what I said on the show yesterday was, look, this next year, I want to be proven right or wrong about the talent level at Notre Dame. And I'm not talking about Notre Dame winning the championship per se. Yeah. But I have said all along, okay, Jeff Quinn held them back. Dell Alexander held them back. Brian Kelly held them back. Well, either we were right about that or we were wrong about that. Because if we were wrong about that, then Notre Dame, we should be pumping the brakes and saying they're a long way away from those teams. But if if we're of the belief that Notre, no, Notre Dame should have been more competitive in the big stage. I think last year maybe is the exception because they were a beat up team. I mean, they didn't have Kevin Austin. They didn't have Braden Lindsay by the title game. You know, they, they were down some guys, I guess, you know, whatever. But my whole point is my whole point, Sean is if, if those things are true, yeah. then when you hire Harry, he stand, when you hired whoever the receivers coach is going to be assuming he's a, a big step up, then, why can't we expect them to then be better? To why can't we expect them to beat Clemson next year? Why can't we expect them to to go into the horseshoe and give Ohio State a game? We just saw Oregon do it. Why can't Notre Dame do it? We've seen Virginia Tech go into the horseshoe in September and beat beat Ohio State, a team that won a title. I'm not talking about Ohio State team that was good. I'm talking about the year they won the national title that happened to them. And I had you know, this argument with Malik yesterday. I, I told Malik, I want to play. I, I'm glad we're playing them early. Yes. Like, I don't want to play them late in the season. Because we – No. Ryan Day's offense is later in the season. Right. But the, the thing is, Sean, is if we're right about – if and you and I are on the same page on this. If we're right about Marcus Freeman, if we're right about Dell Alexander, if we're right about Jeff Quinn, if we're right, right. about Brian Kelly, then I don't think this team is super far away. I mean, I just wrote an article yesterday talking about how there's a chance their name may have their most epic draft class ever in a year from now. 
Yeah. Notre Dame has never had more than four players taken in the first round of the NFL draft. Right. Never had more than four. And the, right. they were 1992 and 1946. No, I'm sorry, 1990. It was either 92. It was the 93 draft class or the 92 draft class. One of those two. And then the 1946 class. Well, if you look at Foskey, you look at Jarrett Patterson, you look at Cam Hart, you look at Michael Mayer, you look at Jason Ademiola, there's and then you look at Brandon Joseph, who has been mocked as a first-round pick by some, that's six guys that could potentially be first-round picks. Right. I, I shouldn't have to wait two years for that team to go out there and win. And you say, well, you know, Tyler Buckner's young. So was Bryce Young. So was Trevor Lawrence. I mean, so, I mean, I'm, tr- I'm kind of – I'm not saying that those guys should, you know – well, they should have to carry the team the way that those guys did. They won't have to because they, he won't be surrounded by other freshmen and sophomores like Trevor Lawrence was. The point The point yeah. is, again, I'm not saying that they got to win a title or I'm going to be disappointed. What I am going to say, however, is I do think we should have my expectations because I do believe that Brian Kelly held the program back. And if we believe that they now have a person in charge who is going to take the program forward in every way possible – then we should start. We should hold Marcus Freeman to the same standard we held Brian Kelly to, because we held Brian Kelly to that standard because it's Notre Dame, and and we should hold Marcus Freeman to that standard. Now again, I'm not saying if they don't win a title next year, he failed. I'm not saying that, but I do think it's time now for us to be able to expect this program to play like it like it belongs on that stage that's the thing i'm gonna say and doesn't mean 12 and 0 next year and all that because the schedule is really really tough but i just feel like you know tyler buckner won't be a freshman next year he's gonna have a very talented backfield he's gonna have a very talented offensive line he's gonna have very talented he's gonna have the best tight end in the country he's gonna have talented receivers that are finally gonna be coached you're gonna have a defense that returns multiple players that we think could be high draft picks now, do they have holes? Yes. And those holes are why I'm not expecting them. To, I'm not predicting they're going to go into Columbus and beat Ohio State by 10. If they had Julian Love and Troy Pride at cornerback and they had the 2018 secondary, yeah, I probably would be saying that. You know what I mean? But th- there are holes on this team still that need to get fixed. There are areas that have to be addressed. They have to do a better job of recruiting and developing corners. They do. Yeah. Right? We believe they can do that because we've seen the program do that before. You know, they've got to do a better job at safety, those kind of things. Linebacker has to get a lot better. That's a problem. That was a problem area for Notre Dame. That ultimately would have done them in, I think, in a game against Georgia. I think what we saw Georgia do against Alabama ultimately would have happened to Notre Dame in that they would have ripped off a big run or two because Notre Dame's linebackers just don't have the length and the power to be that kind of player. So there are some holes that need to get filled. But I do think if if we believe the things we believe about the talent level and Brian Kelly's holding that talent level back by things that he did, then I think we should be willing to be bold. And, and I get I think I know where your hesitation's coming from, Sean. It's like so many things have been going right, and you don't want to put what, too much you, expectation on it. When you said hesitation, like what like for 2022. I like, don't have hesitation for 2022. Because you're like, hey, we need to not set high expectations yeah, yeah. and high standards and all Tyler that. Tyler Buckner's not about to come out and start throwing for 400 yards, but like, but he doesn't. He games. doesn't have to do that for Notre Dame to win. But I don't think. I don't think he's ready. This is my personal opinion. I don't think he's ready to do that. And I today, think offense, yes, I but that's what the off season in the spring and the summer is for. I don't think he's going to be ready to do that at the start yeah, of the season. I don't agree with that. I think he's going to be able to do up, put up two sixty to two to three hundred. Mm-hmm. He's going to lean on that offensive line. 
He's going to lean on the running game and play action and RPO is going to be fantastic. Okay, what's the problem? But he's not about the line. Tyler Buckley's not going to be ready to go into the horseshoe and throw the ball 50 times I, and who, win a game. Who says he has to? No, that's my point because you you brought up. Brian but that's Taylor. not about an expectation. No, no. But see, no. it's 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 about it's about playing to your ability. Though exactly. Bryce Young, Bryce Young does that because that's his talent. Tyler Buckner's a different type of player. Okay, and what he I may he may not was, have the same yards, but he's going to in passing yards, but he's going to yeah. get there in the same direction. And my thing like, was the fans. I said, stop being unfair, mm-hmm. Tyler Buckner, trying to compare him to Bryce Young. When that's not the same output. So you're referring to more to the statistical breakup makeup of what he's going to do. Absolutely. Okay. Like don't stop setting those expectations yeah. for him and allow him to play his game and develop the way he needs to develop. So you saw on our show yesterday somebody somebody was bringing up Jackson Dart and they're talking about his <laughs> senior year stats, right? right. Right. And right. and they somebody was like with us as well. Right. And and somebody was like, well, you know, Buckner put up better numbers. Yeah. And the first response one guy had was no. Jackson Dart threw 67 touchdown passes. Well, Tyler yeah. Buckner only had 53. Yeah. Oh, OK. Number one, Tyler Buckner played one fewer game. Number two, Tyler Buckner had 14 more rushing touchdowns. Like so yeah. Tyler Buckner ended up having more total touchdowns. But the perception from at least one person was is well he wasn't as good because he didn't throw for as much. So if your com if your comment has more to do with the makeup of how Tyler Buckner is going to put his numbers together, yeah. sure. But I think at the end of the day, the overall impact should be similar. I, I think it should be. I if Tyler Buckner's the player we think he is, I think he is. I'm not putting words in your mouth. The player that I think he is, mm-hmm. to me. I view him as a five-star talent. The reason that I didn't expect him to do things this year was because, like, beyond what he did was he hadn't played a lot of football. He hadn't played, yeah. Well, yeah. that's not that's not the case anymore. He played a lot of football this year. Right. He played in high-leverage situations. He wasn't just coming in and, you know, mop-up duty and getting some numbers. He was coming in in high-leverage situations. Team was behind, all those type of things. Uh, and And I think that that we the expectation is that he should come out and be a playmaker. Now he's going to make some rookie mistakes and things like that. But yeah, I do expect him to go into the horseshoe if he's the starting quarterback and to make plays. Will it be good enough to win? I don't know. There the other team has a pretty freaking good quarterback too. You, you know. But it's about laying the foundation for okay, this team is going to be really special. Cuz I don't think losing that first game means no name's not in it. I think the only way that happens if they get blown out. They no. it has to be a four quarter game. Win or lose, it has to be a four quarter game. But if you know, then it's about laying that foundation of okay, you went out, you did your thing. There's some mistakes you're gonna learn from it. Now go out and be and be special. Because I, I do think Tyler Buckner can be special next year. It's just not gonna always look like sitting in the pocket you know, going through pro- progressions and reads and, and picking people apart. It's it's not always going to be like that. Like, to your point, he's not going to go 27 of 38 for 344 yards and four touchdowns, no picks against Ohio State like Bryce Young did against Miami. But could his total numbers be close to that? Yeah, I think they can be. I it's think they can be. It's a different makeup. And I see, for me, I'm like, let the kid, he's going to, the RPO, first of all, what you said, we should see a difference with the offensive line. Absolutely. 
with the coaching, whether it's Holman Wiggins, Jamarcus Shepard, whomever is the wide receiver coach. Both of us are going because I don't think Ohio State secondary is going to be all that great because unless Knowles <laughs> makes an immediate impact as a D.C., I think, yo, Ohio State's going to come in with questions in the, in the defensive backfield as well. And Notre Dame's wide receivers and their tight ends and their uh, skilled groups are going to have opportunities to make plays against Ohio State's defensive backs and their linebackers because those groups have struggled in the same time that Notre Dame's groups have struggled in those same areas. Worse, you, yeah, absolutely. I think you're muted. I think you're muted. Ohio State gave up 87 points in their last two games <laughs> to Utah and Michigan. Yeah, Utah, yeah. And Michigan. Utah lost four games this year. Yeah. They scored 45 points against Ohio State. So that's the whole thing is like, is Notre Dame's defense going to have some issues against Ohio State? Yeah, yeah, they are. Is is Ohio State's defense going to have some problems? No. No, they're not going to because Jim Knowles is apparently a miracle worker. Apparently. <laughs> you know. I guess he is. And, you know, so well, look what he did at Oklahoma State. It took him four years to do that at Oklahoma State. His first year at Oklahoma State in 2018, they gave up more points per game, 32 and a half, than what they gave up the year before when they gave up 29. You know, so, but see, that's the thing that we kind of do as Notre Dame fans, though, right? Yeah. Is, is we kind of, we act as if like Notre Dame's the only team with flaws. No. You know, and oh, well. You saw two teams that had DBs that had no chance. Right. Monday night. Right. Like no chance. And the other team went right at those DBs. Like we, we wanted to go at Clarence Lewis so bad. Like every teams all over America have these issues. Right. Right. And look, and and I know that some people find it annoying to talk about, you know, Lou Holtz's era, but there's a reason we go back to history. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. There's a reason for it. And if you're young and you didn't experience the Lou Holtz era, then I would encourage you to stop hating on the Lou Holtz era and embrace it and go back and do your homework and learn about it. Because what note, what made Notre Dame different back then needs to be embraced. Now we're not talking about the option. We're not talking about a 5-2 defense, but here's what made Notre Dame unique. And this is why I think we need to be able to learn from that is because when Notre Dame took the field during the Lou Holtz tenure, they believed, genuinely believed they could beat anyone. And Miami of that era was Alabama and Clemson now. Yeah. Because if you you look at that stretch during the 80s and 90s when Notre Dame was their last great era – Miami won three titles in a five-year stretch. Three titles in a five-year stretch. That's very Alabama-esque. The two years that they didn't win titles were years they lost to Notre Dame, 88 and 90. Notre Dame could beat them. In 93, Notre Dame beat Florida State when they won a title. That was a great Florida State team because Notre Dame played with a swagger, a confidence. A 89 game was probably – at Miami was probably one of Lou Holtz's biggest regrets. Right. Because they should have won that game. I mean, it was a 10-10 game. Right. And they gave up that third and 34. Yeah. But you you look at it, Sean, it's not about repeating what they did. If you look at the history of college football, champions have certain things in common. They run different offenses. They run different defenses. But they have certain things in common. They're physical. They are well coached. They play with confidence. They play with swagger. They execute whatever it is they run offensively and defensively. They execute at a high level, and they have talent. 
But at the end of the day, it's not always the most talented team that wins. It's And so when you're Notre Dame, Notre Dame was not more talented than Miami in 1988. They were not. I would argue that Notre Dame's talent level was better against Miami in 89 than it was in 88. Yeah. The difference was is that Notre Dame team in 88 had that right combination of youth and experience, swagger, you know, just and they and they had athletes at very important positions. And and so to me, those are lessons that we need to go back and learn from the 88 to 89 to 90 teams, right? But then we also need to sit there and say, okay, how does that apply today? So I don't think we should Im- – no, older folks aren't saying we need to go back to the Lou Holtz era, right? That's not what we're saying because I don't want the option back. I don't want the 5-2 defense back, right? I don't want neck rolls back, okay? Right. I don't want you know corners to be wearing shoulder pads that D-tackles won't even wear today, okay? Right. What we're talking about, however, is to understand to be a champion, right? And I've used this before my own experience. I, I remember my first year of coaching in the, in the national playoffs. We played, we went against Mount Union in the college football play in the national the play college football playoffs, which is a real playoffs. You know, like thirty two teams and all that kind right. of stuff. And I remember that week we had a great week of practice, and we thought we could beat Mount Union. And I've said to people the difference is Mount Union knew they were going to beat us. There's a difference. There's a difference between thinking you can win and knowing you're going to win. Right. And we thought we could win. They knew they were going to win, and they played like it. And that's what great teams do, and that's not where Notre Dame is. I remember talking to a Notre Dame coach about the the, the 19 game against Georgia, and he was like, look, I don't think our players really truly believed when we got the ball at the end that we were going to go down and score and win. Just We didn't really believe they were going to do that. Okay. So they got the ball midfield with two and a half minutes left. Yeah. And, and to me, that's the difference in Notre Dame. It's those missed opportunities. Because here's the thing about Georgia. In both of the losses to Georgia, Notre Dame had the ball late in the fourth quarter where a touchdown wins the game or a field goal wins the game in the 17 game. Yeah. It's not like they've gotten their doors blown off by Georgia. And I'm going to be honest with you. I don't think you, going back thinking about how I felt at that time, I think you're right. I wasn't confident in either opportunity. Right. But they were there. And that's the difference. This team needs to get to the point where you better blow us out because if it's the fourth quarter and this game is close, we're going to win. Yeah. And and that's that's the thing that, that I like. I mean, Sean, and you said this about the Oklahoma State game. I remember when we did our pregame show, you were like, Notre Dame better put one on them early because this is a great second-half team. Yeah. And you watch that game, Oklahoma State knew they were going to come back in that game, and Notre Dame's players didn't have that same confidence that they could stop it. And I think that is going to be, at the end of the day, one of Marcus Freeman's biggest – the things he's going to have to do more than anything is he has to instill a genuine swagger because everyone can play with swagger until they get punched in the mouth, right? It, there's yeah. a difference between genuine swagger and false enthusiasm. Notre Dame's been a team with a lot of false enthusiasm or just none at all. I mean, you watch the Cincinnati game. That team played with no emotion whatsoever. At all. None. And that is the thing that's got to change is, is football has got to be fun and it's got to be a, it's, you got to be passionate and fiery. And that 2015 team had that swagger, which is why they still almost beat two top five teams in spite of bad coaching. And to me, that's the biggest, when you look at the makeup of the team, Sean, that's the biggest 
change that Marcus Freeman has to bring. It's not about the offense. It's not about the the the, the fundamental coaching. Those things are important. Yeah. It's not about convincing Dante more. At the end of the day, if he doesn't change the attitude of yes. the of the program, totally agree. and that's a cultural thing. Not yeah. and when we mean culture, we mean culture makeup of the team. What's your DNA as a football program? If he does, if they don't get back to to just looking at every day as an opportunity to play football again, then then I don't know at the end of the day if the results will be different. It may look different, but the results may not be different. That's going to be his biggest challenge to me, and I think that's why I said to circle back why I believe it does require a dynamic person to win at Notre Dame. Because Notre Dame, it is harder to win at Notre Dame. I've never yes. denied that. Yes. It takes a special type of person to win at Notre Dame. And Brian Kelly wasn't it. And Marcus Freeman needs to prove that he is. And I think he is. Sean, I know that you believe he is. Now it's time for him to go out and prove it. And, and for me, as I said before, which is why I really brought up the product and great team conversation today and what Notre Dame is building to is because I do believe in Marcus Freeman. I do believe he's the right guy. I do believe he set the foundation for the change of the culture during the uh, preparation for the bowl. And I think the expectations of the players have been raised. Mm -hmm. I think they know now each and every day, yo, when I come to practice, I have to compete. Mm -hmm. Like I just can't, BS my way through practice. I think right. under the previous culture, certain players could be that BS yeah. their way through practice because they knew yeah. how to I'm skate. Yeah. yeah. But when you're competing from the first rep, it's like you're either going to get shown up and look bad or you're going to go out there and compete and get better every day. So that's the foundation, and I think he's going to improve upon that, not just on the field, but off the field as well. Mm -hmm. Like you said, it's an attitude thing, man. It's an attitude thing. And people can talk about Alabama, Georgia, Ohio State. Every team has flaws. Every team has flaws. Mm -hmm. Both teams we watched on Monday night came into that game with flaws. Mm -hmm. But the one thing they had was a winning culture. Right. That's the one thing both of them had. The one thing you can talk, we can talk about the defense for Ohio State. Ohio State has a winning culture. Mm -hmm. All right. They'll deal with their flaws, but their winning culture allows them to be in position to have a chance every year to, right. to win. And that's all you want. It, you look at you look at Ohio State too, and they just went 11 and 12, 11 and 2 and won the Rose Bowl, and they're yeah. making wholesale staff changes. Yes. Because there's an expectation that 11 and 2 is not what we set out to do this year. Yes. And, you know, that, you know, that to me, that's kind of where I, where I look at it is. And I say, that, that was a one of Brian Kelly's drawbacks. And that's yeah. what we don't know. That, those are the unknowns about Marcus Freeman. And it's the unknowns about every person until they're put in a position of leadership. Is he going to be able to look in the, look in the eye of someone he likes and respects and has gone to battle with and say, "You didn't get it done. I got to make a change." Yeah, that's the one of that's the hardest thing for a coach to do if you have a soul, right? Like, I mean, if you have any kind of soul, Marcus Freeman is a father of six. He's a husband. He is all those things. He he's going to find that hard to do, but you still got to do it. Yeah, and and those are the things that you because that's that culture you're talking about, Sean. Where yeah. anything other than excellence will not be tolerated. That's right. And Ohio State went eleven and two, 
And and you'd have thought Not they went enough. eight and five this year. Yeah. With the way Ryan Day's making changes. Yeah. You know, I mean, they just had they just had an offense that averaged. I mean, the numbers they put up this year are kind of absurd. They averaged forty five point seven points per game. They averaged one hundred eighty point three rushing yards per game. Five point five rushes yards per rush. They had a true freshman running back ran for over twelve hundred yards and fifteen touchdowns. Six point eight yards per carry. And they just fired their own line coach. Yeah. Why? Because it wasn't good enough. It wasn't good enough. That that that's what that's the that's, that's winning culture. Right. That's winning culture. Whether it's players, coaches, if you don't do what it takes and what we demand of you to be excellent, yeah. Then then you know, and and yeah. And it's not that they win eleven and two. It's it's they weren't they weren't the team they should have been because there's a lot of games they won and Ryan Day knows this where we were just more talented than everybody we played. Yeah. He knows it. He, he knows, knows it. it. Yeah. Which is why he made those changes because it it's not because they went eleven two that he made those changes. It's that we weren't good enough to play for a championship this year. Yeah. And those are the things that that it, it boils down to for me, Sean. And I'll be honest with you, the advantage that Notre Dame has is that Jim Knowles is going to be watching film of the Fiesta Bowl. Mm -hmm. And he's going to say they have the same players coming back. Mm -hmm. But the thing is, we got a new wide receiver coach. So you might come into the game except, expecting, oh, we can do this against them. Oh, mm -hmm. we can go bump and run. But they might be these wide receivers might be totally different wide receivers right. with their releases and everything they did. This is right. something you pointed out. I don't know if you saw this. I saw this on the Megacast as I watched yesterday. Did you have a chance to listen to the the interaction between Kirby and Nick Saban on the field after the mm -hmm. game when they greeted each other? No, I turned it off when that guy ran into the end zone for the pick six. <laughs> oh, the pick six? Yeah. So, um, you know, normally coaches say, man, good game. You guys played a great game. You got a really good team. You know, these two guys, because of their relationship, they know each other. And this, this, is, this is very important because this points to that culture. Nick Saban walks up to Kirby Smart says good game you guys really kicked our ass in the fourth quarter mm -hmm. and that right there told me everything about winning culture yeah. because coaches know winning culture is when we face good teams we're not just we're not just about to run over teams this is going to come down to the fourth quarter mm -hmm. and who makes the plays who's able to dominate the trenches in the fourth quarter both coaches knew that Mm -hmm. neither coach went into that game saying okay we're gonna win this game in the first half right it was like no who the team that wins the fourth quarter is going to win this game and it was just amazing to see nick saban like say that like that was the respect like you gained my respect because you kicked our butt in the fourth quarter people don't do that to us you guys were able to do it that's why you deserve and then kirby said thank you and kirby asked him kirby doesn't say anything kirby said how's jameson williams mm -hmm. like literally and right. nick saban's like i think he i think he tore his acl mm -hmm. this is their interaction on the field right you know and it's just a mutual respect and understand that's kirby and he said in the press conference kirby knew like yo once jameson williams went down it was going to be really hard for them to beat us yeah and we just had to make sure we didn't make mistakes. Right. Which they almost did. Yeah. They almost did. I mean, Alabama's only touchdown of the game was on a turnover. 
Yeah. Where they got the ball, the, fi- the most nonchalant turnover in the history of college yeah. football. <laughs> where the guy recovering it didn't even <laughs> try no to clue. keep his foot in bounds. Yeah. And kept his foot yeah, in Yeah, just kind of, you know, yeah. But that right there for me was like a glimpse into guys understanding like how fragile winning big time games what it really comes down to like you can talk right. about five star four star rosters great players are you resilient enough have you built built up enough mental fortitude have you built up enough culture winning culture and swag in your program that when you get to these moments in the fourth quarter you make the necessary plays to win the game. And mm-hmm. that's what Marcus Freeman is trying to build right. brick by brick. He's trying to get this right. program mm-hmm. to a toughness and a mental resilience. And I think Stetson Bennett talked about it. They asked him, what, were you, what was your mindset after that fumble? He said, my mindset was, I'm not going to be the reason that we lose this game. Right. And he said, my mindset went back to January when we were running the steps in the stadium. And coaches were killing us, telling us this will show up in the national championship game. You pushing forward and overcoming everything, running these stairs, is going to build your mental fortitude when we show up in the national championship game. He said that's where his mind went. Mm -hmm. So I paid the cost to be in this position, and I'm not about to fail. Right. And everybody else on that team was locking step with him in their mindset. And they responded. That's what it takes. Mm-hmm. That's why I say every team that wins the national championship is special. Mm-hmm. It's special because they had to go through something right. to get to that point. Right. And Which, by the way, Georgia brought back the same number of returning starters as Notre Dame. I think Mr. Right? Mr. We are too young and inexperienced and don't have enough whatever. Georgia had the same number of guys drafted in the NFL draft last year than Notre yeah. Dame did. Yeah. Nine. Yeah. So, look. but the thing is, to your point, the reason I bring that up, Sean, let me, yeah. you know, because I made the point in my head, but let me make it out loud. Georgia makes no excuses, <laughs> right? None. None. Bama makes no excuses. He never said, "Ah, oh, well, you know, we lost because we didn't have Jameson Williams." I mean, it, did it impact the game? Sure, it did, and they yeah. talked about that. But yeah. he also said we had chances to make, you know, win the game, and we didn't do what we needed to do to win the game, right? right. Georgia lost guys. Hey, you know, Kirby had, look, man, we, Eric Gilbert quits during camp. Darnell Washington gets hurt. We got to play a true freshman at tight end. George Pickens gets hurt. Kyrus Jackson's hurt. Arian Smith gets hurt. He played only four games. They had, we, we, our freaking five star quarterback, we got to transfer in, isn't getting it done. We got to play a walk on. No excuses. There were no excuses. He could be like, you know what, guys? We had a great run. We had a great – no, it was no. Look, we're here to win a championship. I don't give a crap about all these excuses. They're just going to make us stronger. And exactly. that's the thing for me and the, my final piece, Sean, and I got I to gotta run because I got to get ready for uh, uh, for our show. I got to go grab some lunch here before we get going. But, you know, to me, one of the things that I've always felt, Sean, is you talk about like running the steps and doing all that kind of stuff. It's about embracing the struggle. Yeah. And I think that's something that ultimately was a Brian Kelly's undoing Notre Dame by its, its sheer culture of an institution creates challenges for you as a football player. There's no doubt about it. 
how the football coach embraces those and gets you to embrace those challenges determines your culture. And what I mean by that is Brian Kelly created a culture in which the academic difficulty was an excuse. Remember when they lost to Stanford in 2017? Well, you know, guys yeah. had a lot of finals and no, 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 right. no. Lou Holtz right. never did that. No. And I know some coaches on the staff that were really, really ticked off. And when Kelly said that, because they're like, you're giving them excuses. Whereas when and you talk to the old heads, right? You don't talk to guys that played under Lou Holtz. They'll say yeah. that was used as something that you think anybody else is in study tables right now. Do you think anybody else is in, in is is studying for midterms right now? Do you think anybody else out there is doing? No, 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 no. You're special because you do this. Yes. And you're stronger because you do this. And you're yeah. mentally tougher because you do this. And he embraced the struggle. And that's to me what champions do. Like right. Georgia doesn't have that, but Georgia, Georgia was like burden. Georgia and Alabama have ad adapted this because the one thing that made Magic and Larry so unique is that they were so alike. Yeah. They were so different in every superficial way possible, right? right? One from Indiana, one guy's from East Lansing, but beyond that, like Michigan State, Indiana State, you know, right? Uh, magic wins a title bird loses it one guy's in hollywood he be, you know he becomes he goes from Irvin to magic you know right. the other guy's the blue collar guy from boston you know predominantly white team the predominantly black team you know what i mean now despite the fact that boston had a black head coach even though jay williams thinks the first black coach they ever had was the current guy right you know even though they had three black coaches win championships the point is they were different in every superficial way possible they were the same exact dude on the inside and they were right? both both blue collar like people, right, like Magic came from a blue collar. He, he blue collar family. He Absolutely. was East Lansing before he went. You know, for, before he went out to to to. But but that's why I say on the outside they were they were polar opposites. But on yeah. the inside they were the same dude. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of how Kirby and Saban are to a degree in that they're they're out there. We're doing this because we know Bama's doing this. We right. know Bama's working hard. I've been there. I was part of four title teams of Bama. I know what sacrifice they're making. Yeah. And I and we're this is why we're doing this. And so Notre Dame doesn't have that. They don't have that team in their league that they can go against. What Notre Dame has is they have a built-in system that says, "Hey, if you can do this, then that part's easy. If you can do this, yeah. and you can and you can embrace this, if you can embrace the academics, if you can embrace the the fact that you're living in a dorm, if you can embrace all those things, it's going to make you a better football player. Whereas Brian Kelly used those things as excuses. He used those as crutches. Yeah. Brian Kelly was the king, the king of manufacturing crutches and excuses. And that's what Marcus Freeman has to, that's the one thing he's going to have to tear down from the Brian Kelly tenure is no more excuses. None. This is what makes you great. You having to go to class, you having to make sacrifices that nobody else is making. You have to be up at five o'clock in the morning because it's midterm week and you've got to be do this. Nobody else is doing this. And that's why we're going to be champions. Yeah. And, and to me, love, that's what he's got to do. That's why I love what he said when he said, look, this season is over. The honeymoon is over. We got to go be great. We got to create a great product and we have to create a great team. And he wasn't talking about years down the line. He was talking about 2022. So, man, Brian, we thank you for joining us. Thank you for jumping in at the last minute to help me out today to talk about this My subject. My pleasure. You know, I knew we would come at it from different angles, and that's exactly what I wanted. 
don't forget subscribe, share, like, and uh, support Lucky Lefty. Don't forget, are you guys doing a show today? We are we're going to twelve thirty. Well, twelve thirty Eastern, so we're going here in about twenty minutes. I'm going to go try to quickly grab some lunch. We are going to talk yesterday, Sean. We talked about where the offense is, yeah, where they are now, where they need to get to to be a champion. Sort of what you did, but we just kind of broke it down into smaller pieces. And today we're going to talk about the defense. Okay. And just where Notre Dame needs to get to to be a champion. And it's kind of interesting because I believe that the defense is what's carried Notre Dame, but some of the recruiting issues have it to the point where the defense doesn't have the overall talent that the offense has. Right. And how that's got to get fixed and things like that. So, um, yeah, it's going to be an interesting show. All right. You guys know what show. time it is. And you got me all fired up, too. Like, I'm going to go into that show fired up. You know what I mean? Petticoat. It's time to get petty. Oh, we did a good job executing. Are you upset with something? And fire up the Petticoat Junction train. I just don't like you. You don't? No. What is today's petty historic Petty Junction? Right, Petty Junction each and every day. I gotta go down to Memphis for the pettiest story of the day. If you have a petty story you want to nominate, go ahead and put it in the chats. We're gonna go to Memphis for one of my favorite basketball players, man. I love him, but I gotta throw him on the petty train today. None other than Jean Morant. Uh, he this is his second time on the petty train this week. We put him on the petty train for that block. Well, he blocked a shot with his elbows the other night out in L.A. So he didn't have to do the old man like that. So we put him on a petty train. Two-handed it, man. Two-handed at that. But Brian, last night, post-game after beating the Golden State Warriors, huh, he was asked about mistreatment of a young Grizzlies fan that didn't represent. After the last bucket, you got Drew the foul. You go into the stands, and there's a little kid Wearing yeah, a Warriors he was disrespectful with that jersey on. He was say that again. He was disrespectful with, <laughs> with that the jersey, jersey on. on. You no mercy for the little kid. Nah, <laughs> we in Memphis. <laughs> it looked like he wanted to cheer, but he had that jersey on. <laughs> I apologize to him, but in that moment, bro, take the jersey off and then dap me up. <laughs> Do you nah, expect him no, back? And you want him back in a Grizzlies jersey next to my yeah, next for time? Sure. Yeah. Uh, somebody find you know his information. You know, I sent him one myself. That's you know that was kind of cool. He kind of recovered at the end, saying, "You know, I'll send him a jersey." But you being petty, man. It's like, yo, he's a young, impressionable kid. Steph Curry is is the the face of basketball for a lot of these young kids out there. They love him. There are a lot of Golden State thirty jerseys in stadiums all across the NBA, and just because he happens to be a Grizzlies fan that wore a Steph Curry jersey. He only gets to see Steph two times a year. He decided to rep Steph Curry. That's probably his favorite player. Ja, come on, man. I could see if it was like a grown adult. Right. Still standing out to Steph Curry. Right. It's a little kid. Like, you know, you're kind of petty with your anger. Yeah. I, you hey, know, go, go win a ring. If you want people in your hometown to not, you know, wear Steph jerseys, go get a, go get a ring. There you go. There you go. And shout out to the Grizzlies. They're one of the best teams in the Western Conference. Yeah. Young enough. I do like watching Jaw play, though. He is. Oh, he is phenomenal. Yeah. 
He is phenomenal. I just so, love uh, how two of the best guards in fucking college in the NBA, like one came from Davidson. Where Jocko John went some small school, right? I forget where John went, but he went somewhere small too. Murray State. You know. Yeah, there you go. Murray State. And man, it is yeah, that's petty, man. It's so, a little so, uh, kid. Nah, Sean, yeah. there is no age limit when it comes to pettiness. Okay, there should God. be though. There okay. should be. <laughs> okay. well, as I said, Michael Jordan, he did have a two-handed block when he was like 40 with the Wizards. You're right. You're right. Juan, thank you. That's right. Jay Rooted Damage of Time, always right here on the Petty Train. Thank you guys so much for joining the show. Don't forget to subscribe, share, like. Don't forget January 26th, we start our pre-sales for our fitted caps and our trucker caps. We'll be rocking those next week on the show so you can see what they look like. You can see what the logo looks like. And then the website for the full store will be launching sometime over the next two weeks. We'll get that information to you really soon. Brian, thank you so much for coming. I appreciate you. Go over to Irish Breakdown. Not only the uh, show today, but the message board as well. If you haven't signed up, go sign up for the message board. Over Irish breakdown for all the intel. Great conversation during the day. Because your first official day is technically Monday, right, Sean? First official day is Monday, and I told the uh, told them that I'll be dropping a story next week. I actually prepped it up. My first story is going to be a conversation with Drake Bowen. So we're going to drop that next week, and uh, I'm looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to it. So me too. Get the I'm Irish glad to have breakdown. you on board, buddy. Yeah, things won't be the same in recruiting for Notre Dame. We're about to change the game. We spin it different. Not just here on the Lucky Lefty podcast, but also over at Irish Breakdown. For my good friend Brian Driscoll, I'm Sean Davis. We'll see you guys tomorrow for another episode, 9 a.m. of the Lucky Lefty podcast. Man, spin it different today. <laughs>